This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Happy Wednesday morning to you, everybody. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day. And if not, let's uh, let's change that. Let's do a little about face on that uh, on that day. Today, by the way, is All or Nothing Day. Is this Millie Vanilli? Who is this? This, this is Millie, Millie Vanilli. Vanilli. Yeah. This brings back such memories. Oh, it's All or Nothing Day, folks. Whether you- it's applying for a job, trying an extreme sport, or just saying sorry to someone. Everyone has uh, something they would love to do if they weren't such a scaredy cat. Speaking of saying sorry, Millie Vanilli knows a thing or two about that. <laughs> yeah, they do. In fact, uh, Millie Vanilli, I don't know. It's just they were they were huge in my day for a year. Were you duped by them? I was duped. I was totally duped. I was on my LDS mission in Argentina. Would walk down the street and you'd hear Millie Vanilli everywhere. And I, I didn't know what was going on. And then by the time I got off my mission and was home, uh, they were found out to be a fraud. Lip syncing problem. Millie Vanilli was the start of me questioning everything that I thought was true. Really? When it came this out like that they were lip syncing, I, uh, I started questioning Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Well, why, did, why go to such an extreme? Because you don't have to it's throw. all lies. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Come on. I don't know what that has to do with. I mean, I guess the <laughs> Millie Vanilli used to bathe a lot. Uh, by the way, and our kind boss, Don Shaline, gave me a Millie Vanilli vinyl. No. It's in my office. Oh, yeah. Really? A vinyl, yeah. I don't know what to do with it. It's displayed prominently right behind you. Yeah. Does but it I, contain Girl, You Know It's True? It's their. It's one of their main songs. It might be "Girl, You Know It's True," or it's this one. Or it's "Blame It on the Rain." Or yeah, there's they whoever, had th- yeah. three hits. Well, they didn't, but their whoever singer, actually, songwriter. Yeah. It, yeah. The interesting thing, it never came out who actually sang those songs. Yeah, that was sad. Is that guy could have a career? Right. He probably did. Actually, this guy. He's probably See, a ghost singing. singer on a bunch of other albums. I had the album on cassette, and when I found out there was you know lip yeah, sync, yeah. I threw it away. And my dad goes, "What are you doing?" And I'm just throwing that away. Why? Because it's 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 not even them. They well, faked it. Dark. He goes, it's dark. Do you like the music? And I went, Well, yeah. And he goes, well, Keep it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I kept it. I think I still have it. Yeah. Did you, you did you keep it? I think it's in a box somewhere. Bring it in. Why? I don't know. Do we have a cassette player? I'll hang it on my wall. I have one in my car. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I'll take it off your hands for five dollars. By the way, I Jeff, mean, you pay me five dollars. Jeff Liam Simpson is looking for all the cassettes he can get right now. Yeah. He's got the last cassette player in a car known to man. I currently have an audio book on cassette tape that I cannot listen to because they're so jammed into the uh, uh, holder. You can't get them out. I can't get them out. Hmm. So I'll never know what happens. Well, you know what? You ought to go down to like maintenance. They, they'll get it out. <laughs> They've got equipment. Speaking of things that are, that are blocked and yeah. blaming things on the rain mm-hmm. – uh, we went down to our basement laundry room last night to oh, discover no. that uh, everything that was in our sink at one point in time now came up through the drain in our laundry room. Ew. Ew. And apparently my wife says that stuff like this happens when it rains. Blame it on the rain. Yeah. Yeah. 
Blame it on the rain. Yeah. So I had to bring my toothbrush yeah. to work today because we turned off all the water. Oh, is that what you were doing? And shaving your back? That was weird. <laughs> it's so weird when people go into the public restroom and brush their teeth. The, to me, I, I think just that's, don't know what to do. Well, it's maybe their water is off. Do you avert your eyes? To, uh, I know, but I would. Ahead. I would just like go to the drinking fountain and then I'd go brush my teeth outside and spit it. I, I wouldn't go near a restroom to brush my teeth. A right. public restroom. And if you ever make eye contact with those people, it's always like, don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> what? Holy cow. Well, I'm sorry about your uh, drain backage backing up. Here's the deal. Um, when you walked into your washroom, your your laundry room, did you have that fear come back through your mind of you almost being electrocuted uh, by no. your dryer? I was more worried that whatever substance came up out of the drain was somehow going to be flammable. Yeah, good point. Wow. Did you Did you hire somebody to come fix it? You're not going to fix it yourself, are you? I mean, just remember. <laughs> remember what happened last time. I just don't want you to – I kind of need you to finish the week, right? I don't want you to die. Yeah, just get to Friday. You're just saying that because you want to take off early on Friday. Boy. No, I don't. Come on. Come on. Hey, we got a great show today. We will be talking about uh, apparently Donald Trump's going to invest in America's infrastructure. That's what he keeps saying. I mean, but he's got to get the tax break done. He's right. got to get health care done. He's got to, you know, corrupt some Boy Scouts in a speech, apparently. They <laughs> – depends on who you ask, I yeah. guess. I saw different opinions on all sides of that yesterday. Oh, yeah. It was pretty funny. But uh, the transportation secretary is Mitch McConnell's wife. Right. Right. Yeah. She's having a tough time. One of the first initiatives they tried to push a couple of weeks, uh, about a month ago, was they want to privatize air traffic controllers. Sure. Right. Sure. For some yeah. reason, that's where they wanted to start. And all they found is roadblocks every way from Republicans, Democrats. Everyone like, w- w- does anyone want this? What's, Come on. What are you guys doing? And they're pushing this one initiative. And that's the first on their transportation infrastructure they gotta bill be, that they're trying to put together. See, they got to be careful because didn't air traffic controllers bring Carter down or Reagan? One of them had a major. I think it was Reagan. I think he went in and stopped. busted a strike or something. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, got to be careful. About but I, so that's where they've started, and that's as far as this transportation thing is, has gone. If you remember on election night, that's Trump goes out there to do his acceptance speech and starts talking about this transportation bill, infrastructure yeah. bill that he hasn't even talked about. So the Republicans on that at that point they're like, "What? What are you talking about? What is about? happening here? We don't want to spend more money." And he's talking about a trillion dollar plan. Holy cow! Well, we'll be talking about what is the best way to spend your money when it comes to infrastructure. Is it investing in transportation? Is it investing in communication networks? We will be also discussing how you decide, because there's some pretty innovative ways to measure a network. Did you know that sometimes adding a new road only creates more congestion? Oh. So and maybe you would, you'd you be would know served. about that. Oh yeah, as the mayor of Townton Abbey. As the mayor of Townton Abbey, um, I have learned my lesson that you can't just throw a road anywhere you want a road, or you might create congestion, and then that costs you a lot more money late. In fact, that reminds me, I, I really need to check in on Townton Abbey. It's been a while. So you've turned into every other politician. Well, I Just think after a while, I, you stop I, paying attention. I've, I've hired good leaders to manage my Sim City. Oh, really? Wrong. And then um, I pay them well. Wrong. And then I like to check in on a quarterly basis. You just sort You're of wrong. show up and cut yeah. the ribbon. Cut a ribbon here. Hug a baby here. Kiss, right. you know, kiss 
a child. You're, you're like here. the face of the administration, but you're not actually part of the administration. You're just sort of around. Many would say I am the administration. Well, you're not there though. Many would I'll say the facts. I put the men in the administration. All right. Whatever that means. Minimum administration. <laughs> it's not ad minimumstration. Should be. <laughs> but it's not. You guys don't even know Town Tanabi. You act like you know, but you don't know. We're a very tight-knit community. You sound like a teenager right now. <laughs> you don't know me. That's because I spend a lot of time with my teens. Mm. Gifts from heaven. Uh, we've got a great show today. We'll also be talking about some empty news, news you didn't even know you needed to know about. Plus, uh, holy cow, I'm liking uh, John McCain. Right. He came back after surgery with a brain, di- uh, brain cancer diagnosis, and it seems like he's going to take everyone on. Like, this is crazy. Or he said a bunch of things that everyone can kind of get on board with. Criticize politicians, which, again, everyone can get on board with. Criticize the media, which, again, everyone, everyone can, get can get on board on... with. Well, and then it's empty words, and we go back to what we've been doing. Well, but doing. the reality is it's a man that's dying. Right. And he's going to probably – he might very well be able to say everything that no one else dares to say. I wonder what that would be coming position. from you. Oh, you would not want to know. Who would you tell off? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell off anybody, but I'd definitely play Millie Vanilli. Yeah. By the way, and also the blues. I am getting so into the blues. Who's your favorite? B.B. Uh, King, of course. <gasps> Eric Clapton, you got to love him. Any others? No. Uh, Ray Charles. I don't know if he's um, bluesish. You do know that he lip he was a lip syncer. Ray. Yeah. Really? I'm sorry to break the news. What? Ray? Uh-huh. No, I don't believe it. Not my Ray. By the way, there's a whole movie out on him. You ought to highlight it on your show. Called Ray. Your show is called um, Screen Cleaning. Yeah. Fridays. I don't know if we'll be talking about that one. Ray Charles. Try it. So we'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we should be paying attention to? The story of that semi-truck trailer in Texas with uh, undocumented immigrants that had uh, 10 people die in the truck. Apparently there was at one point over 100 people in the truck. What? As the number keeps shifting around as I read. One of the people in the truck that died was a uh, a, uh, a boy that grew up in Virginia, deported to Guatemala after graduating high school in Virginia. 19-year-old Frank G. Fuentes was brought to the U.S. as a child, shielded from deportation through President Obama's 2012 Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Uh, Jose Barillas, a Guatemalan consul general in Houston, told Univision that Fuentes was later deported after committing crimes and was later was trying to get back to his family who now lived in the D.C. area. So far, 10 people were traveling in the truck have died. It looks like this is going to turn into a big narrative of all the yeah. immigration problems that we're suffering through. Right. And uh, semi-truck trailers transporting people have been used since 1991 as they've cracked down on the border. So you can't. it's not as easy to walk across, so they're just coming across So we, we have somebody that we deported that then trying to come back died. We'll also probably hear a story or two of... Criminals that had been deported that were trying to make their way back in. Yep. That'll even out the storytelling. But nonetheless, 10 people died. And now reports have the investigation looking at an Ohio trucking company that owned the trailer, leased it to somebody else, 
who hired the driver who has a criminal record out of Florida. He'd spend time in prison in Florida. Oh, wow. Who didn't have a, a license, shouldn't have been driving the truck. And it's all connected to the Mexican cartel known as the Zetas. Or the Zetas, depending on how you pronounce it. But yeah, and, and they're pretty violent and they kill people and they're profiting off of mm. this whole problem that we Tragic. have with immigration. Uh, of the 111 brains of deceased National Football League players studied by neuropathologist Ann McKee, 110 of them had CTE, which is the degenerative brain disease believed to cause. So 99 out of 100? They had 111 brains 111 donated, total. but they're all former NFL players whose family believe they had CTE. Yeah. So of those 111 brains, 110 of them had CTE. Now, she's saying it's the whole sample is there biased. There could be a sampling bias because anybody that thought their person had CTE would right. send the body and the brain in, but the but reality the, is... The preponderance of the numbers, numbers is a big number, and it's just showing that the problem is probably bigger than they talked about. So if you play in the NFL, you have like a 90-plus percent chance of having CTE. Right. So it's a big story. The the one I found this morning that was more interesting, NPR reporting female athletes are very prone to concussions, but scientists don't know a lot about how it affects them because they almost exclusively study male athletes. Yeah. They don't oh, study the female brain. Right. And, and they found in some very uh, preliminary discussions and, and uh, research about it, that women, uh, female brains react differently to the concussion than men's brains, and really? they recover differently. And they recover. But they're not, they're not studying female brains, they're studying male brains. Why are even we when, not jumping on this even, faster? Even when it comes to mice that they use in like preliminary yeah. research, they use male mice, not female mice. It's so biased. Right? So they. Uh, Plus, it's so hard to fit a mouse for a helmet. It is. <laughs> but just the idea, you know, if we're going to use animals, they tend to use male animals instead of female animals. I think part of that is because they feel like the pregnancy aspect of life changes the oh, female specimen, so they want yeah. to stick with the male. Yeah. And now they're saying, no, you can't do that because it's. We've had this problem with medication, yeah. pain drugs and uh -huh, stuff. They everything. only study males, no females. And so the when BMI you, that was only for men. When you give that, that the drugs to women, you don't know how they react. They react differently. And so it's all, all this problem in the just the research end of studying humans is now coming out that we're not studying females like we should. Well, I'm, I'm curious to know what they propose to do to just play two-hand touch or change the helmets. I don't know. But but mm. they're basically exposing mm. the fact that the NFL tried to cover it up for a long, long time. That's mm -hmm. kind of what I think this is coming to. But how do you fix it? I don't know. When your brain starts bouncing around inside your head. Didn't you, you mention one time on the show some sort of a collar that they put on that would be yeah. more effective than a helmet? Yeah, we had a, we had a cue collar. Yeah. We did a whole show on that. I don't know if it's more effective than a helmet in protect. I don't know. There's it, something about your brain stopping. Yeah. <laughs> it meet like at at eighty miles an hour. It's just not meant to do that. <laughs> it's, but it's an interesting thing. And why again are we so slow to kind of be jumping on this? Because this is every kid playing football, soccer, every cheerleader that gets a head injury because right. her catcher didn't catch her. Mainly because there's certain groups and they have lots of money, and other people that get injured want that. Mm. as repayment for the injury they were trying to cover up for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's a scandal. It's uh, – there's – what's the movie with Will Smith? Is it called Concussion? No. I think it is. It, or, it, I yeah. think it was Percussion. No. It was about a drummer. No, it's about the doctor In that, Atlanta. The Not doctor that discovered CTE 
mm-hmm. the efforts that went to squash everything he was trying to yes. put out there, and they tried to stop yes. him. And it's a very good movie. It was. Well, sounds like it. Wait, Jack Bauer was in that one, right? CTE. No. Oh, that was CTU. Okay. Yeah, it was CTU unit, and I think the show was percussion. There's not a lot of shows about a drummer. Uh, Whiplash. Come again? Whiplash was nominated for Best Picture a few years back. Great segue from brain injuries to Whiplash. Absolutely. <laughs> Ambulance chasing attorneys are, we've piqued their interest. <laughs> Anywho, got a lot of great stuff to talk about um, coming up. We will be speaking again with Anna Nagurney about uh, how America should invest in its transportation. Straight ahead, right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Talk about good. Missed your chance to tune into your favorite shows? With the BYU Radio app, you don't have to worry. Get hundreds of episodes of Highway 89, Top of Mind, The Matt Townsend Show, and all the rest right at your fingertips. It's free to download and available on iOS, Android, and Amazon mobile devices. Get the BYU Radio app today. Talk about good. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, think about it. The Internet, our highway system, our cell phones, all of our electrical grid, it all runs on systems. And with one major blow or an accident or another country, you know, wanting to take down these systems or an enemy wanting to take down the system, it puts us all at uh, at risk, uh, our national security, our personal security. And uh, President Trump has, has vowed to uh, invest in our infrastructure. But what parts of the infrastructure would he invest in and what would be the best decision? And how do you decide where to spend these billions or hundreds of billions of dollars to strengthen our country and our infrastructure? Here to speak with us today about uh, this topic is Dr. Anna Nagurney, a professor of operations management at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Dr. Nagurney, thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. What a um, invitation. You bet. You bet. We need some insight here because apparently we are going to, according to our president, be investing in infrastructure. But uh, really, infrastructure seems like, you know, it could be anything from freeways, highways, electrical grids um, to our our networks of Wi-Fi, our our computer or uh, what do they call it? Our cellular networks. Talk about uh, networks and and what are – because you're a systems expert. Talk about the the power of a network and and how do we decide when we think about uh, where we're going to invest our money? How do we decide where's the best investment? Sure. Actually, networks underpin our economy, as you were saying, Matt. Uh, They're extremely essential to productivity, to our everyday lives, and, of course, to our economy. Uh, However, it is imperative that we invest wisely, 
because sometimes you might make very poor decisions that actually don't help anyone. They don't help travelers. They don't help the freight drivers. They might not even help our telecommunication networks. Mm. Uh, for example, there's this really famous paradox known as the Bryce Paradox that I've been working on for quite a while, uh, which says that if you add a road and you don't do it intelligently, you can actually increase the travel time for all drivers in the network. <laughs> so I, they actually would be better off without Without it. Okay? It's, it's funny, but we just think add another road, just add another road. Exactly. No, that doesn't work because it's not just a matter of like the topology, like what's connected to what, which road is connected to which road, which rail lines are connected to which rail lines and so forth. It's what is happening on those roads. And you, if you think about travelers, they're actually, they're selfish. They want to choose the be- best route of travel to get from, say, home to work and also from work to home, and they're all competing for that kind of infrastructure. Okay, so it's actually like a big game theory problem. Mm. You might know of like uh, John Nash, the brilliant, actually Nobel Prize winner in economics. It's really a Nash equilibrium game. So if you don't factor in like decision making or what's actually happening on these networks and how they perform and how they're operated you could actually make very bad decisions. And a lot of these networks, they're operating in like a decentralized manner. You can't tell me which route to take to work or which mode of transportation, right? right? And the Internet is similarly a decentralized network. So they operate different than, say, a freight network where you can control, for example, how you're going to route the flows from different origin nodes, different cities, to other destinations, other cities, and so forth. This gets complicated, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's actually it's beautiful because if you think about networks, we can visualize them graphically. So people tend to understand that, okay? We abstract them in terms of nodes, which are like circles. Then we have arrows representing like roads or internet links. And we have different origin destination pairs uh, from which the traffic is generated. And then the flows are attracted to. And we capture the behavior. And the thing is, we're living in a nonlinear world. It's no longer a linear world. Okay? Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of congestion. We have congestion in our roads. I don't know if you know, but typically uh, the average commuter in the U.S. wastes about 42 hours a week, a year, stuck in traffic. Oh, really? So that's about as much as he or she gets in terms of vacation. And we're losing like $160 billion in productivity because people are stuck in traffic, okay? They can't be actually performing their jobs. Uh, You're wasting time, and you're also wasting energy, and that also adds to the pollution. So we do have, like, uh, great needs for investment in an infrastructure. It's extremely, extremely important, and not just in transportation, but also in telecommunications, in our electric power grid, our airports, our waterways. Come on, we're the best country on the planet. We should have the best infrastructure. Okay? Well, and are we not moving? We're moving also into a whole different era of, of like telecommunications, I mean, Wi-Fi, electric cars. There's other things that, we're, that maybe aren't even fully on the radar yet, but will be fully part of our life in 20 years. 
Yeah, exactly. And actually, I work in the area of super networks, Mm. and these are networks of networks and uh, how different network systems actually interact. So the future is one of super networks is also the present because you're going to have the Internet and Wi-Fi controlling electric cars, for example. But how will they be routed? Will, will they be routed in a way that's best for you and me so you get to work in the fastest possible time? Or are they going to be operated like in a central way so you minimize total cost to society? A lot of those questions haven't been answered. Okay, and also you brought up the issue of security and cybersecurity. We do a lot of work in t- terms of cybersecurity. That's another era, uh, area that we really need to invest in, firms need to invest in. Because if one, say, financial services firm gets attacked, it might propagate through other financial services firms and so on. So that's an extremely important area as well. So it's interesting because we sit and talk about infrastructure, building the infrastructure, and another goal of President Trump's is to to create jobs. And a lot of these infrastructure programs were supposed to create jobs. But so then that might complicate even the decision making as well. Like, where do we need the jobs? So let's find infrastructure decisions that we need to make in those areas. How on earth is anybody going to sort through it all? And how how should we go about making such decisions as to the most effective use of these hundreds of billions of dollars? Actually, with a collaborator of mine and a former doctoral student at the Eisenberg School of Management, Patrick Chung, we developed a network performance measure that's been applied to different transportation networks actually around the world. It's also been applied to supply chains, which is very, very important, because it's not just a matter of mobility of people. It's also a matter of mobility of freight and goods. Mm. And if the goods are stuck, like at the ports, if the trucks can't deliver in a timely manner, that affects our global supply chains, affects the prices of the goods, and so on. So uh, we've adapted, actually applied our measure to different cities around the country, and they've also been applied in Asia, in Europe, and so on, to identify which are the most important, like, nodes and links to invest in. So if you invest in them, you actually have the greatest increase in the performance of the network. Hmm which is really, really important because we want people to be able to get to their destinations as fast as possible at the lowest cost. The same thing for our goods. Yeah, you've got to – but it's interesting. You're making the decision based on data, um, exactly. but, but you're, you're saying that you can actually assess the performance. You have a network performance measure, so you can take every network, evaluate its performance numbers, and then you can even decide in the network which link, which – which connection, I guess, would be the most valuable connection to invest in? Precisely. And you can rank order them. Because there might be some, like the bridge to nowhere, that makes no sense to build. Right. Okay, So there's no sense in investing in those links that won't be used, Okay, no matter how well they're built. Okay, They're just not attractive. Okay, They're not needed for commuters. They're not needed uh, for workers. They're not needed for essential freight services. And that, that's really, really critical to figure out. And the thing is, it's not just, you know, the map topology. It's the economic activity that happens on our networks that's so, so important. Hmm. Okay. Does it, does it end up being – because it seems like if the government invests uh, in 
uh, mass transit and uh, trains and ways to move people, but the people are still wanting their cars. Um, does does it end up enticing the people to get out of their cars and get into mass transit, or how do you how do you still allow the will of the people? Uh, you have to make the choices attractive to the people. I spent a lot of time doing research in other countries around the world and living in other countries, uh, for example, like Sweden, Austria. And the transportation systems there are fantastic. When I was a visiting professor at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, for example, I had multiple modes of transportation I could take to work. Hmm. I could walk. I could take a ferry. I could take a, a tram. I could take a bus. And everything would be like electronic. You would know when they would arrive and so forth. So you could make really, really good decisions. And it was a pleasure. And a lot of times, actually, different modes of transportation would be subsidized, like children would ride for free. Those who are, like, pushing strollers with kids in them would ride for free on public transit. Hmm. So I think we need things like that in the U.S., and it should be enjoyable. That's really important. I yeah, because an ease, ease of access, ease of exactly. gathering the data. Exactly. We're, we need uh, to be reliable. We're having um, some situ- a situation here in Utah where a lot of companies are coming in. They call it Silicon Slopes. A lot of big national, international companies are coming. And we thought we had an infrastructure built with freeways, but it looks like – and they've just finished mega you know, work on freeways. But in yeah. the end, um, it's not going to be enough. And by the time 20 years, 30 years from now, we'll just be – we'll just – our car jams and, and locked in. How um, – so how does – how do you take existing networks and all of these decisions and then project it for the future need – um, as as the country seem and the population seem to be moving around. Okay, we can take our measure to identify which are the most important links and nodes that exist, and also you can look at different kinds of options in terms of where to invest. Okay, if we build a particular road here, what will that do to the network performance, the efficiency? What if we add uh, a different mode of transportation? For example, our, our work has been applied in Ireland to identify where they should add another, say, uh, subway link. Okay, it has been applied actually even in Indonesia to identify more effective shipping routes. Hmm. Okay, so that's like a freight service application. So that's really, really important to figure out uh, the projections in terms of demand, the needs, the capacities. But the thing is, if we're not even investing sufficiently in maintaining our existing infrastructure, I mean, we're really, in my opinion, in a crisis situation. We need $4.6 trillion over the next 10 years. Oh, okay. boy. Yeah, it's that bad. <laughs> Is it really? Holy yeah, cow. Yeah. $4.6 trillion over the next 10 years. Exactly, exactly. Unbelievable. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Anna Nagurney, and Anna is a professor of operations management at the University of Amherst, or Massachusetts Amherst. She is also currently a fellow at Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. She's uh, doing that fellowship this summer. We'll continue the journey. When, uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about how these choices, how we're going to make the choices and find out uh, what uh, Anna, where Anna believes we should be investing this money specifically. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Anna Nagurney, a professor of operations management at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, Anna is the author and editor of uh, 13 books, including the book Fragile Networks, Identifying Vulnerabilities and Synergies in an Uncertain World. Today, she's walking us through all of these decisions we need to make with our infrastructure. Anna, again, thank you for your time. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be on your show today. $4.6 trillion needed over the next 10 years. Uh, it seems like, okay, let's just say we could actually get $4.6 trillion. Um, it's, that actually sounds like the military budget, for heaven's sakes. Um, so, which might be a good place to get some of this and use the military to build some of this. Um, what do you think about how how should we go about spending the money? Where do you suggest are would be some of the best investments? Uh, telecommunications, transportation, water, electricity. Where should we be putting this money? I think some of the greatest needs are as follows: We have a total need of say. Uh, two trillion in surface transportation. Mm. Uh, when it comes to water, it's about 150 billion or so. Electricity, it's almost one trillion that we need to invest in. Also, our airports, our waterways, our dams, our levees. Think what happened to Hurricane yeah. Katrina. Okay, and now we have the number of disasters is increasing as well as the number of people affected by disasters. So I think the investment in infrastructure is even more important than it's ever been. And also in terms of rails, we need to invest about $154 billion over the next 10 years. And the schools, too. Just like the, the dilapidated buildings? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think th- this is a great opportunity, though. I look at it more as a positive challenge. Hmm. Because it's kind of a win-win situation, okay? You will create jobs. You will improve infrastructure. It improves the environment, okay? Uh, it makes everyone's life better, Yeah. okay? Because it actually costs. If your car is going over, you know, rutted roads, bumpy roads, and so forth, it's going to cost you in terms of insurance costs, time, wear and tear, not to mention the frustration and stress, Okay. The same happens when it comes to our goods. Okay. We have, we're in an era of global supply chains. We have inputs into our production processes coming from all around the world. If you have delays, then you know, your cars get delayed. Okay. Right. Your goods get delayed. That costs time. That costs money. Okay. No one's happy about that. Manufacturers aren't happy about that, and neither are consumers. So it's extremely important, and also it's really, really important to be investing in telecommunications, okay, which is something typically the American Society of Civil Engineers doesn't really talk about. They're more into uh, kind of the roads, the waterways, airports, and so on. But telecommunications is essential. Look at like what South Korea is doing, for example. Everything is so high-tech. And sooner or later, as you were mentioning, we're really going to be in an era of Internet of Things, okay, mm-hmm. that connectivity. And to have the best kind of Wi-Fi, the best kind of Internet is going to be affecting our daily lives. It's going to be affecting our mobility. It's going to be you know, truly affecting our economy. So I think we, we have to go after this. I mean, we should be a role model for everyone on the globe, okay, and make... 
What do you think about private versus public? I mean, I look at a lot of these, um, and it seems like many of these really could be private endeavors, and it seems like right now is a good time for private companies to be investing in things like this. Uh, I completely agree with you, although I think we should have some caution. Uh, There have been some examples of private investors in terms of roads in the U.S., Mm. for example, even a uh, Spanish company, for example, in Indiana, and they didn't figure out the tolling appropriately to recover the cost, and there was like a fiasco, and the company (laughs) went bankrupt. And, you know, some people might say, why are foreign countries buying buying roads? roads?" (laughs) Even my students kind of, really? That's happening? Yeah. Yeah. I said, yes, it's high. but there, there are some really exciting opportunities. I don't know if you've heard about the FirstNet project, for example. No. It just happened a few weeks ago. AT&T got this major, um, it's about 4 to $6 billion contract uh, to provide very high-tech telecommunication systems for first responders mm. in the U.S. So you'd have interoperability and so on. And it's going to be a, uh, say, at least a 10-year project. And they're supposed to be investing about $40 billion of their own money into that. And to pay back the U.S. government then to about like 4 to $6 billion. Wow. So I think that's really, really exciting uh, uh, project. And a lot of the states are now trying to partner, trying to decide whether that is actually the best thing for them. When you think of all the forest fires, for example, the wildfires are west, we need better communications, okay? The interoperability is extremely, extremely important for our first responders. I think that's a kind of a very, very neat project. And Google, for example, in Utah is building um, a uh, – they're building a, a network. It, it seems like having some of these companies that have a long-term interest in mm-hmm. owning some of these networks – It might be a pretty smart way to do it, and then partnering with the government. Exactly. I completely agree. And a lot of the telecommunications companies also, they should be helping those in more rural areas when it comes to broadband and so forth. Now, here's my fear, Anna, because you you bring up a a really powerful – the network performance measure that – we could actually measure every single solitary network and then rank them, put them in an order as to the greatest value to the people, of the mobility of people, the mobility of freight and transportation and cargo. But is, is it that the system the government's going to use? It seems like it, that the government doesn't usually operate that efficiently. And then, then Congress gets involved and yeah, that, then it's whoever, you know, then we have the bridge to nowhere. Right. Right, exactly. Well, I think they should be good for their constituents. Okay, I think everything is more transparent now because of the Internet. Okay, People find out uh, where, if the money is being well spent or not. So I think they have to be careful. They have to be cautious. And it's really time to move forward. Okay, I think this could be really, really exciting time because we can't fall behind in terms of competitiveness. Right. I really think we're essentially at the tipping point. Either we move forward or things won't be good. Look at what China is doing uh, with the one road, for example, and it's connecting Iran to China, okay, moving Europe. The investments that they're doing internationally is just incredible, yeah. including in Africa, not just in Asia. And, it's, and it is, I mean, if you think about it, if, if we're going to be investing $4.6 trillion anyway, we may as well invest it efficiently and quickly, 
and uh, imagine the impact it could have on everybody. Yeah, precisely. Boy, and I guess probably the best handout we could have is to have a smart handout like that. Right, right, right. That employs and the economy. It's good for everyone's health because goods move faster, move better. Uh, There's less stress in the environment long term because when cars are idling, they're polluting more. So Hmm. it just it's. A win-win situation. Well, what advice? And jobs, exciting jobs. Exciting, exactly. And yeah. engineering and even STEM jobs yeah. you can see would come from this as well. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give as we wrap this up um, to the rest of us that are sitting in traffic all summer wondering why they have to do road construction now and maybe the complexity of these systems? Because you, you brought up a really interesting point with um, with the – is it the, the Bryce paradox? Um that these systems are highly complex, and the people that are creating these roads generally have thought it through. Uh, yeah, what happens locally can have much broader impact because of the connectivity of the networks and the behavior of the users of the network, so that has to be taken into consideration when we do our investments. And it will be worth it short-term as well as long-term. Okay. Before you know, people forget about you know the construction, uh, the minor disruptions, and so on, because they can see the future. They can see the future for themselves, for their children, and ultimately, hopefully, their grandchildren as well. That's right, Dr. Anna Nagurney. Thank you so much for your time, your great insight. Again, Anna is a professor of operations management at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, walking us through uh, an article that uh, she wrote about the. Uh, the uh, effectiveness of our transportation and communication networks, how we decide where we're going to invest in America. Interesting insights, interesting life that uh, we've got ahead of us, folks. And uh, in the end, you know, it's still it's still our leaders that will be making these decisions. So we want to make sure we apply the right kind of pressure on them. Up next, we'll continue the journey, do a little Coach's Corner and get you the latest uh, information on how to be healthier, happier, and lead the kind of life you really want to lead. Up next on The Matt Townsend Show. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Welcome back, friends. You know, a while ago, I put together a, a, a workshop, a program that we video recorded um, to, and put out uh, about anxiety and stress because so many of my clients were suffering from anxiety. And I had no idea how successful it would be, but 170 people show up to, to take the class and uh, almost every one of them just just average Joes. These aren't, I mean, these are just average people, but they're stressed out of their head. And we got into some pretty interesting discussions. One of the discussions was about how you recognize that you're stressed out. I found a wonderful article on Huffington Post in their healthy living section, 10 weird signs that you're stressed out. Your body might be trying to tell you something. I wanted to run through that with you today so that you can start to sit, uh, determine, are you a stress case? Are you going, are you losing it? Are you losing your energy, your ability to focus? So a lot of the data shows that uh, more and more people are are stressed. And in fact, um, it can lead to some pretty significant problems, heart problems, sleep disturbances, depressive symptoms. Remember, 
stress and anxiety are sisters uh, with uh, depression. And so more and more people are depressed. Some, you know, blame it on the media and the news and, you know, politics there. A lot of people are just stressed, I think, simply because they watch too much TV and they're in the comparative social media network. So here's some signs that your uh, stress is actual, that you might be a stress case. Number one, your muscles are throbbing, strained neck, tight shoulders, lower back pain for men may be a, a common side effect of stress. Typically, women experience issues in their upper backs. Um, so if all of a sudden you feel a lot of sore muscles, if, you're, if you feel uh, your muscles are throbbing, and uh, it's probably because you're tense and all day long you're sitting there in a tense state. Another sign is that you have headaches. If you have consistent headaches, they call that the stress headache, that dull aching pain that feels like a band around your head. You, you probably have a stress headache. So then all of a sudden we start taking over-the-pain, over-the-counter painkillers like ibuprofen to relieve the stress, except if you take too many ibuprofen, then you get other stomach-related issues because you're not supposed to chronically be in pain and taking ibuprofen that much. So pay attention to that. Another sign that you may be uh, having too much stress is you're thirsty. When you're feeling anxious, it can cause your adrenal glands, the small glands located at the top of your kidneys, to pump out stress hormones into your body. So sometimes when you have that pain back in your kidneys, it may be your adrenal glands working too hard. And that eventually leads to fatigue, right? And then a fluctuation in other hormones. And you can literally just fry your adrenal glands. And that's where all of a sudden... You get thirsty more, you get worn out, you get exhausted. Another sign is you're sweating a lot. If you have excessive perspiration, you may uh, have a a persistent uh, problem known as hyperhidrosis, and it can affect those who experience a little anxiety or more anxiety than than usual. You can try some stress-controlling tricks like taking deep breaths, listening to some calming music, maybe meditating in the middle of the day. If you're losing hair, if your hair is falling out, these are all signs that you may be too stressed. Uh, too much stress can cause hair loss. Um, I guess telogen effluvium, which can cause your hair to fall out, uh, you know, as you're brushing it. Scary. Other, there's a lot of other uh, issues that might be stress-related if you are losing your hair. Now, if you're just balding, that's a whole different thing. You're running to the bathroom a lot. If you're going to the bathroom a lot and you're not somebody that's hydrating and drinking a lot of water, then uh, it might be that anxiety is causing some digestion issues for you. That fight-or-flight response um, might be working on your digest- digestive system as well. And uh, anyway... Be careful of that. Some other basic ones, if you're not feeling too hot, if you feel like you always have a cold, if you have tooth troubles, a lot of jaw pain, a lot of people carry their stress by grinding or clenching their teeth and their jaw, or if you see um, you're gaining weight, or your memory is foggy. These are all signs that you may be stressed out. And by the way, I think Jeff and I just ticked off every one of those. Hmm. Even though Jeff, you know, just had his basement flood. Nothing to stress about, Jeff. It's all good. I uh, hope uh, that helped. Not to stress you out, but go get some help. Go look, at, go look up uh, our program. Go look up other programs. Finding ways to de-stress. Up next, we'll continue the journey, helping you be the good in the world and live the healthier life that you want. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Joined, of course, by Terry and Jeffrey. The band is all here. So we will be playing the oldies all hour. All hour long. Including a little Milli Vanilli. It's all or nothing day, right? Today's the day you, you got to get all in. So risk whatever you got to risk. Today, it, we make it happen. It's uh, risk it. If you need to apologize, get in there. Do anything you can to overcome your fear. If you wanted to go ask for that raise, today's the day. All or nothing. Really? You think Don will say yes? Yeah. I feel good about it today because it's we're playing the Millie Vanilli song a lot. Good stuff. Um, we will be talking about All or Nothing Day. We've got a lot of headlines, empty news we've got to cover. News you didn't even know you needed to know. We'll be talking also about um, a uh, our, our first guest will be talking about the power of writing to actually heal some of your pain. They've done studies on people that go through divorce, and when you go through a divorce, if you do some narrative expressive writing, they found it lowers your stress levels. So rage writing. Could be rage writing. Okay. Uh, or just like expressing of your pain. Hmm. It's therapeutic, and it lowers your heart rate. It lowers your blood pressure. So you don't have all of these other problems that hit your life. We should find out if writing in all caps versus writing like yeah. lowercase. Would, yeah. Does that help? Yeah. Or? Well, that so that's shout, shouting. Yeah. Now this would probably this is like expressive narrative expressive writing. So you wouldn't do this in a tweet. Oh. You blank and blank and blank, or you'd blank and make me blank and blank and. But the guy we're, we're bringing on, he's of a younger generation. Maybe tweeting helps. Maybe that's yeah. the kind of narrative journalism. We'll, we'll ask him. Yeah. I mean, but be careful. Uh, narrative expressive writing, you may not want to always share all of it with everyone. Because you might. Well, you could send the tweets directly to the person you divorced, include them in the narrative, right? Yeah. On Twitter and then social media, Facebook, everyone would know. I'm betting that that's not his idea. Do emojis help? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Emojis make it so you don't have to write anything, just an emoji. Just, hair, just the hair on fire emoji? Mm-hmm. I like that one. You just can't decode them very well. Did you know that there is, a, there is an emoji for creepy? Because I wrote that in a text yesterday because ha- my friend had his eyes dilated. And I wrote back creepy and then creepy eyes came up on my emoji screen. Really? Yeah. Pretty cool. Did not know there was, an, a, cre- uh, there was a creepy emoji. I mean there's a few that are creepy. Let's be real. Did not know that there was a specific one. Today also we will be talking about uh, why it's important to have faith, no doubt. Exercise faith if you're, if you're having trials and troubles. But when you're driving and you choose to pray, keep your eyes open. Seems like a no-brainer. Hmm. But again, another story of somebody exercising faith yet closing their eyes. It seems like God would frown on that, like – Keep so, your eyes open. So maybe pull over if you need to. Pull over. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we don't want to judge how you worship. Right. But if you are, you know, driving a motor vehicle, keep your eyes on the road. 
keep one eye open, hmm. close one, faithful prayer. So this would not be a good excuse to use if we got pulled over for drowsy driving. No. I was just worshiping. I mean, you could try. <laughs> I just don't know where. Which is more dangerous, praying, eyes closed, driving? Yeah. Or, I don't know, texting? Oh, for prayer sure. driving. Well, prayer driving is for sure safer. Really? Even with okay. your eyes closed. Oh, even, safer? I was going to say it was more dangerous. No, even if you're like on your knees, head bowed, okay. driving, still safer than texting. Wow. Yeah. How much space do you have where you can get down on your knees and kneel? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I have a lot of space. You just slide the huh? seat back a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Except today I lost my Nutrigrain bar. Ooh. Made me so mad. You're never going to find that. Because when you're going 73-ish miles an hour and your Nutrigrain bar flies out. I hadn't opened yet, so that oh. was nice. But it flew out and under my seat, my passenger seat. Mm. And then I got on my knees. You went for it. I went for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't let it just sit there. But they've made these cars so compact now, I couldn't even get my hand down there. Wow. Did your hand get cut on the sharp French fry? No. You know, I don't know that I have a French fry in my car yet. I have a yeah, new, you do. I have a new car. We all do, even if we don't eat French fries. Well, you, you mean a security fry, we call it. It comes with – if you buy it used, it comes with a sharp French fry. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I like to have a sharp French fry handy just in case I need to break the window to get out. Mm. You never know. Case of emergency. Yeah, case of emergency. Where's that fry? Right. Uh, We'll get to all of that. Plus, uh, Schoolgirl 7, I guess, uh, faces 15 years of operations after getting a toy battery stuck up her nose. Oops. She had the toy battery up her nose for five months. And now this little girl's got to have a bunch of surgeries. Tragic. That's too bad. Mm. Um, An obsessive woman jailed after crashing a police car that was helping her boyfriend uh, help – it was helping her boyfriend escape. That's not good. So the cops are trying to get the boyfriend away from her because the boyfriend called and said, help me, and she's chasing the car down the street. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. It sounds like a healthy relationship. Maybe they should try journaling. Yeah. Well, I'll ask. I'll ask, <laughs> yeah. the, I'll ask the expert if narrative expressive writing would help. Help lower their heart rate. Just call it rage chasing. writing. I think that's a better. Yeah. yeah. really gets to the emotion of the issue. Rage writing. Rage writing. It's a great program. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to all that data straight ahead. But first, and by the way, I think Ron Brokaw, Tom's uh, third cousin, Tom Brokaw, the journalist extraordinaire, his uh, third cousin, uh, Ron Brokaw, is going to be chiming in on one of our stories today, which is an honor to have uh, the great journalistic integrity of Brokaw back on the show. We'll get to that. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? A top committee in the House has asked chief executives from the biggest Internet companies to testify about net neutrality in September. It's time they came before us and directly shared their positions and answered our questions, says Greg Walden, who chairs the Energy and Commerce Committee. Republicans have been pushing to settle the net neutrality issue with legislation. The execs invited from Facebook, Amazon, uh, Google, Netflix... AT&T, Comcast, so it's kind of the who's who of from everywhere of the internet. Tensions are running hot between large tech companies and some Republicans. Top GOP aides, for example, recently told Facebook, Amazon, and Google that aggressive net neutrality advocacy could threaten their own policy uh, priorities. 
A hearing involved major executives would undoubtedly air some of those conflicts out publicly and gives lawmakers an opportunity to press executives on their concerns. But just a reminder, an invite doesn't guarantee an executive is actually going to show up. Right, yeah. you know, they're not being like summoned. Yeah. You're not, yeah, you're not being subpoenaed to the, yeah. So we'll see where that goes. Arizona residents uh, perusing, perusing, I guess the term they're saying here, the state's official driver's license manual will find new information about how not to, how to interact with law enforcement on the side of the road. Or in other words, as State Representative Reginald Boulding says, who helped add the language to the handbook, how not to get killed by a cop at a traffic stop. Yeah. The idea to add this update to the manual was particularly inspired by the death of Philandro Castile, a black motorist in Minnesota who was fatally shot by police during a traffic stop in front of his uh, girlfriend and his young daughter. Bolding, the uh, representative from the state representative from Arizona who is black, consulted with eight Arizona police departments asking, how can you have a traffic stop and avoid confrontation that could lead to being shot? And he right. got eight different answers. Each, oh. each police department had a different approach. He's like, that sounds like confusion. Let's try to figure this, this out. This is a smart idea. So you can very gener- you can you can give all the rules for how to be pulled over without being shot. Yeah, so the representative ended up working with the state's Department of Transportation and Public Safety to come up with something more consistent across all agencies to try to avoid this horrible situation. You remember Philando Castile had yeah. a concealed weapon. Right. He told him, I have a concealed weapon. He wasn't, you know, there's a video. He's not really doing anything, and the cop went agitated and It shot seems him. like there needs to be universal training. I mean, I've always heard keep your right. hands on the steering wheel mm-hmm. and then tell them if you have something in the car that you're not supposed to or Absolutely. that they need to be aware of. Right. But, so, yeah. Just found that kind of interesting. A small airplane designed to look like a Nazi Germany-era warplane landed safely on a Georgia highway over the weekend. News outlets reported uh, that the aircraft landed safely in the median on a highway Monday afternoon. No reported injuries. The plane was piloted by Fred Meyer, who doesn't own the aircraft, but built the engine and helps with its maintenance. Hmm. Uh, Meyer said the engine suddenly quit in mid-flight. The FAA described the airplane as experimental amateur-built aircraft. The plane designed to look like a Nazi German uh, fighter plane flew in World War II. Includes a swastika on the tail, really? which adds to some anxiety in the area. Yeah. Meyer says the design was just for fun. I was just having fun. Just but, for I fun. mean, you want it to look legitimate. Yeah. But it does scare the neighbors. <laughs> neighbors are like, what's going on? A uh, new study gaining weight between the ages of 18 and 55 leads to significant elevated risk of developing major chronic diseases, obesity-related cancers, and non- early non-traumatic death, according to a new Harvard study. How bad is it for every 11 pounds gained after 18 years old for women and 21-year-old for men? There is a 5% greater chance of dying prematurely, huh. even if you've never smoked, 30% risk of type 2 diabetes, 14% greater risk of hypertension, 8% risk of cardiovascular disease, and a 6% increased risk of obesity-related cancer. This is, again, for every 11 pounds gained after 18 years for women and 21 years for men. 11 pounds. So every 11 pounds, 5% greater chance of dying Man. prematurely. Oh, boy. Yeah. It's because it's also those last 10 pounds that are the hardest to get off, so that's added... 22% higher likelihood, no, 10% higher likelihood that you're going to die of heart disease or whatever. Right. Bah! Ah, oh, jeepers. That's and kind of a downer. And also Rick Perry, the energy secretary. Yeah. He was duped by some Russian comedians. Rick Perry? Yeah. He got on a phone call with him. He was set up by his staff because they were duped also. It was a 22-minute phone call. 
They he thought he was talking to the Ukrainian prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't, and he talked about. Let's see. It was a promise. They were promising a new biofuel made from pig manure and homemade home brewed alcohol. Hooch. Hooch, basically. Hooch energy. And uh, they talked about it for 22 minutes. Oh, you don't drink it. No, it's not for beverage. It's it's for your it's car. Not not for consumption, Jeff. So. They also talked about the Paris Climate Accord and cyber attacks on the power grid. Okay. Let's just get something straight. If, yeah. if I'm in the Trump administration. Yes. I wouldn't call Ukraine, the Ukraine or Russia mm-hmm. or anywhere in the Baltics. I wouldn't call yeah. I wouldn't call anybody right now. Right. Really? I wouldn't call anybody. Just kind of stay away. I just go stay stay local, you know. Only talk to farmers in the Midwest. There you go. That sounds safe. It just seems like if not you're going to get sucked into the Russian investigation. Yeah. Now, Perry's going to be sucked into the Ukrainian investigation. Or at least there'll be audio leaked here in the next few days of him having this very in-depth conversation with comedians. I was confused because like a radio show. for about five or ten seconds, I thought you had meant Rick James. Yeah. So I just had the song, she's a super freak, super freak, she's super freaky, going through my head. Really? Yeah. Is that where your head goes? Rick James? Yeah. Well, when you say Rick Perry, yeah, they're so close, see? You say? They're <laughs> so close, you say? Um by the way, speaking of politics, our president is – he's quite the artist. Did you see that he um, he has now – has a hand-drawn sketch of the New York City skyline, President Trump does, that he then signed. Really? And it's now up for bid with a starting bid of $9,000. Now, I'm going to show you this. We'll put it up on our Twitter feed, at Dr. Matt Show. Jeff, I'm going to show you the skyline of New York – as drawn by our president, does that look like New York or what? Was that drawn on a napkin? Um, I think it was just on a piece of paper. During a business lunch? But there's even, um, I guess, the Hudson River. Is that uh, the river or, or is that a it road? it could be a road. Yeah, it's a non-delineated road. Two squiggly lines. And his signature. I mean, it could be like heat waves or stink waves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, there's so much to interpret. Yeah, not really. There's just – I mean honestly, it's a, it's a picture that looks like, you know, a fourth grader did it. Now, who who put this up for bid? Um, Donald did. For $9,000. It's for charity. OK. Yeah. The sketch of the New York City skyline donned by President Trump with, will likely fetch thousands of dollars at auction. The 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 um, it was on sale by Los Angeles based Nate D. Sanders auctions with a starting bid of nine thousand dollars. And apparently it's all part of a 2005 charity initiative by logistics company Pitney Bowes. So now that he's president, they probably did it back then. And now that he's president, they're putting it up for auction to raise more money. OK, see, it's pretty good. Pitney Bowes, I think they, I think they make engines, don't they, for airplanes. Maybe that's now, how he's, maybe that's how he's going to pay for some of these airplanes that they're building. Now they sell fourth-rate doodlings on napkins. For, fourth-rate, yeah. By the way, it's on an eleven and a half by nine-inch drawing, so it's a it's a boy. I don't even think it's the original. I think it's a forgery. His signature is in gold, in a gold sharpie. Hmm, it's amazing. 
He's an artist and he didn't even know it. Uh, so all of, uh, you know, all of the time you just thought he was the president, maybe a real estate mogul and uh, an apprentice person that can fire people. No, he's also an artist. So you're going, you're going to want to enjoy that. Hey, a story we promised we'd talk about and we're doing this really because we want to take care of our listeners. We want you to be safe. We want you to, um, to not – to, to drive safely uh, is a story of a woman who plowed her car into the side of a Florida house and told cops that she was praying with her eyes closed at the time of the crash. She was then charged with reckless driving by obviously some heathen infidel police officer that did not understand what she was doing. But isn't there, uh, you know, isn't there like a PWD charge, praying while driving charge? Yeah. No, because I guess if you were really praying by driving, this should have all been averted. (laughs) So according to the police, the 28-year-old woman drove into the side of a home about 35 miles east of Pensacola. The motorist, uh, cops say, blew through a stop sign at an intersection um, before going over a curb and a lawn and then hit the residence. When questioned by county sheriff's officers, the driver said that she had been praying with her eyes closed as the 2005 Ford hurtled toward the home, the woman was transported to a local hospital for evaluation. None of the residents of the home were injured. Thank goodness. And this, we, we hear this story about twice a year, three times a year. We appreciate your faithfulness. We really do. Maybe Pray. that was part of her prayer. Please bless me that I will not hit any pedestrians as I fall asleep. Maybe See? So maybe it did work out for her. But uh, just as we like to do, we brought in our own um, Ron Brokaw, joins us now to share a brief PSA, public service announcement, on the dangers of driving while praying. Folks, distracted driving is not new. It is the cause of millions of automobile accidents each year. But eating, texting, and playing Pokemon Go while driving now seem like a good idea when compared to this latest craze that's sweeping the nation known as prayer driving. Well, we here at the Matt Townsend Show feel it is time to bring you this important message. A recent survey shows that 7 out of 10 pastors and theologians agree it's best to keep your eyes open while driving. So no matter how strongly you're tempted to shut your eyes, remove your hands from the wheel, fold your arms, and offer up supplication to a higher power. Remember, that higher power is the one who gave you that wheel, and he wants you to use it properly. This advice goes double if you're driving with others in the car. And if you find yourself in the passenger seat of a prayer driver's car, remember, Friends don't let friends pray while driving. A message from believers across America. Until next time, I'm Ron. Why don't you pray at home like the rest of us? Unbelievable. Reporting live from behind the wheel, I'm Ron Brokaw. Divorce is a common stressor that can increase risk to our long-term physical and mental health. And for people struggling with the complications of a divorce, a new technique called narrative expressive writing 
has proved promising in reducing stress related, uh, the stress related to not only divorce, but other stressful events in our life as well. Uh, we're going to be talking with Dr. Kyle Barossa, um, who is um, joining us today. He's a clinical uh, psychology PhD grad student and was part of a study that examined the truth behind the, um, this idea of narrative expressive writing. And we're excited to have you here, Kyle. Thank you for your time. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So talk to us about um, narrative expressive writing. What is, this is, a, is this a new technique, a new idea for releasing this emotion and thoughts? Yeah, so it's actually a new version of a um, form of expressive writing, which has been around for a while. So expressive writing actually was invented um, by someone named Pennebaker uh, out of the University of Texas. And this is uh, a technique in which you have people talk about um, traumatic or stressful events in a way where they sort of re-experience their emotions and talk about what they went through, whereas, um, you know, narrative expressive writing takes that one step further. So rather than just saying, okay, you know, we want you to, you know, re-experience and talk about your deepest, darkest emotions around this event, um, narrative expressive writing asks people to create a story and, and try and create meaning out of that experience rather than just um, trying to describe the emotions behind it. And we think that can have important impacts on people's ability to sort of take that event, whatever it may be, in this case, divorce, which we're going to talk about today, um, and create meaning out of it. And in doing so, hopefully improve their, you know, both their psychological, but also, as we looked at in this study, their physiological um, health. Huh. So this is this is actually more than just kind of dumping your emotion. This is putting you in the author's role of rewriting the narrative. Exactly. And I think that's probably one of the key parts of why narrative expressive writing saw sort of these positive impacts compared to traditional expressive writing and some of our other work. Um, so this is with uh, Dr. Dave Sabara, my uh, advisor, and some other um, uh, professors here, Matthias Mel, have been looking at this idea of, you know, how can we understand why narrative expressive writing seems to have um, improvements over traditional expressive writing. And in some of our other work, we've looked at, you know, who are the people that do well um, in traditional expressive writing? So that, you know, just sort of, like you said, dumping those emotions. And for people that, you know, are good at creating narrative, they're the ones that just sort of naturally make meaning out of these events and say, you know, okay, this was something terrible or hard or sad that happened to me, but, you know, it's, you know, it's meant to be, I'm going to grow stronger. It's something that, you know, I can handle. Those people do fine with traditional expressive writing, but for people who sort of re-experience their emotions in a negative way, they get stuck on them, um, do something called rumination where they just kind of sit with those thoughts and can't get past them. Uh, it seems that narrative expressive writing has benefits for them because you explicitly tell these people, you know, don't just re-experience your emotions. We want you to actually create a story. We want you to say, you know, where are you going to go from here? And, you know, how is this going to, you know, this this event, how are you going to fit it into the overall story of your life? Hmm. And and so I guess some naturally do this uh, or or maybe take that role of as the narrator. Um Talk about the study you did on divorce and, and and what were some of the main outcomes you learned? Yeah, sure. So basically, 
This was a, a larger study looking at uh, 109 recently separated adults. So these are people that um, in the last couple months had either um, become divorced or uh, physically separated. Uh, in our research, we kind of consider physical separation and divorce to be the same thing. Just kind of call that all uh, marital separation since legal divorce can take place, you know, even sometimes years after the actual separation. And we took, you know, these 109 uh, recently separated adults and assigned them to one of three different conditions uh, experimentally. So they were randomly assigned. Um, those three conditions were either traditional expressive writing, the thing that I've been describing in terms of sort of experiencing your emotions, describing those deepest and darkest feelings, uh, narrative expressive writing, which is more... Um, you know, asking people to tell the story of, of their divorce experience and where they're going um, on top of the traditional expressive writing um, instructions, and then uh, control writing conditions. So something that we could use as an active control, which means, you know, these participants were doing something, uh, but it wasn't the sort of expressive writing, either of the other two expressive writing conditions, and we just asked them to write about their uh, day. Hmm. And now we uh, brought them in and studied and went, put them through a battery of psycho, um, psychological sort of self-report, you know, how are you doing type questions, and then also through a set of physiological tasks. So they were hooked up to a heart rate monitor as well as uh, impedance cardiography, which essentially means um, looking at people's heart rate and heart rate variability. And basically put them through a few different tasks. So things like a general stressor, which is, um, in this case, is asking people to count backwards uh, by seven hmm. uh, and telling them to do it quicker and quicker and telling them when they're wrong, which can be very stressful. People don't enjoy math very much. <laughs> and uh, as well as uh, a divorce-specific stressor and then some recovery periods and baselines, uh, basically a, a bunch of different tasks in which people were either being stressed out or they were sort of recovering from those stressors. And so then after that, they, they were sent home and they were given their specific instructions for their uh, writing conditions. So that's when you know people in the traditional expressive writing got their instructions, narrative, or the control writing. And basically they went home and they wrote uh, in their journals for, um, I think it was uh, 15 minutes a day uh, for three days. And then they were um, brought back in three months and then six or nine months later and were basically, you know, we brought them in and put them through the same uh, exact tasks as they did the first time. And we were able to look at their outcomes in terms of, you know, previous studies from, from the group that I work with here have looked at psychological outcomes. But in this case, we were actually interested in those physiological outcomes. So heart rate, heart rate variability and blood pressure. And what we found was that people who were in the control writing and traditional expressive writing didn't really see any difference between those two groups. So essentially, traditional expressive writing didn't seem to, to differ from just, you know, writing about your day. Now, this is different when we looked at people in the narrative expressive writing. So they actually had decreased heart rate, which is good. You don't want to have sort of a high heart rate when you're walking around in your everyday life, because um, that's actually can be a detriment to your health. Right. Uh, and they also had higher heart rate variability, which was really interesting to us because heart rate variability is essentially this 
um, the, a measure of how well your body is able to flexibly re- respond to stressors. So if you imagine you're <clears throat> walking through the forest and you see a bear, you want, you, know, you want your body to ramp up and get ready. You want the adrenaline flowing. You want your, your heart, you know, you want to get going, right? Right. Because you might need to run. You might need to fight. You don't know what's going on. And so let's say that bear is actually, you know, just a cardboard cutout of a bear. And you go, oh, okay, I'm fine. Well, then you want your body to say, okay, we're good now. Time to calm down. Um, and then that would sort of bring down your heart rate so that you're not sort of putting wear and tear on your cardiovascular system. Now, high heart rate variability means you have that ability to go up and down and sort of have that control, whereas someone who doesn't would sort of just stay in that heightened sense of, oh, gosh, I, you know, what am I going to do and not recover? So it was really interesting to us to see this differentiation in terms of heart rate variability because um, that might have something to do with people's ability to, to sort of respond to this stressor of divorce. And what do you attribute it to with the narrative expressive? Why would the narratives be able to manage heart rate variability? So, you know, that, that's a great question. I think, uh, I think it's one we're still trying to answer. Uh, if I was just going to sort of take a stab at it, I would say it probably has something to do with importance of having – reason for why things happen to us, right? Mm. So if we think that, you know, this divorce was just terrible and it was an awful thing and I'm never going to be happy again, then helpful for you to just, yeah, exactly, just, yeah. just feel that all the time. But mm. if you are, you know, told by someone, well, you know, what does this mean for you in terms of who you are or where you want to go? then maybe there's some ability to say, okay, you know, this isn't something that I need to run away from. It's something I can feel and be okay with. Now, that would be the first step. And then when you don't have sort of that psychological reaction to this negative stressor, that can have really big impacts on the way that your body responds to it too. So if you imagine... um, you know, seeing something that you're, you know, or experiencing something stressful, your body, you know, your body gets upset. If someone cuts you off in traffic or, you know, you almost get in an accident, you know, your heart rate and it's going to go, it's going to skyrocket. So in these cases, maybe it's something about reducing how stressful or scary or frightening thinking about the divorce actually is. Hmm. Because remember, we're bringing them into the lab and they know what they're going to be doing. They're going to be talking about, you know, their divorce experience they know what the study's about. So that, that can be stressful on its own. Absolutely. Maybe for the people in the narrative expressive writing, it's a little less stressful. Well, and I guess they've already spent a lot of time writing about it, but they were always in a position of the narrator, which, I mean, I think a lot of us overlook the power of just writing our story <laughs> and, and, being, and seeing that we can adjust it and, and maybe being the writer of the story instead of the kind of the victim of our story, we end up writing it differently. And seeing all the iterations, it's power. No, I think that makes sense. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. If you think about the ability to be an active participant in your life rather than, as you said, you know, someone that's just sort of seeing it happen, I think that that's an important aspect of a lot of the research we do, looking at you know, how can people help themselves take a distanced approach to um, thinking about things that go on in their lives. You know, I was talking before about these 
um, you know, sort of two different types of people, the one that just sort of re-experiences their emotions and the mm-hmm. one that sort of tries to create a narrative and create the story. Um, a lot of research, um, this would be Ethan Cross, um, I believe he's at Northwestern or it's Michigan. <laughs> yeah. And uh, been looking at essentially this, you know, the way that people describe um, sort of events where they maybe got upset or got angry. If, you know, there are certain people that are better able to take a sort of third person distanced approach and, and look at it, you know, sort of take that out of their own experience and sort of look at it from that third person perspective. And that can be helpful for a lot of people, but for others, they're in it, you know, they're just sort of right there and can't get any distance or any perspective on it. And in those cases, I mean, then yeah, as, as we've been talking about, you're kind of just stuck with it. You know, you're not, you're not necessarily uh, <laughs> doing anything with right. it. Right. No, that's huge. Uh, let's do this. We're speaking with uh, PhD candidate Kyle Barasa, who is putting together um, his uh, research. He's a clinical psychology PhD graduate student and has been studying the um, impact of journaling uh, in, a, in a specific way, a narrative expressive writing or journaling approach, and how it actually reduces heart rate uh, variability, blood pressure following a divorce. We'll take a break, come back, get some insight from Kyle as to what we can do ourselves to become these narrators of our own life, of our own experiences, um, and, and what are the steps to moving that along. That's all up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger right here on BYU Radio. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is uh, Kyle Barossa. He is a, uh, I guess, a, a clinical psychology PhD grad student. Was part of a study where they examined the truth behind uh, the impact of journaling and narrative writing, expressive writing, on you know managing heart rate, heart rate variability, and blood pressure, and found out that it's a great tool to actually help your heart rate variability, help you manage your heart rate and your blood pressure. Um, we're, again, excited to have you back, Kyle. Thank you for your time. Yeah, definitely. Again, I love talking about this stuff, so happy to be here. Did Did you notice – so it wasn't – didn't you do the test on things other than just divorce? Or And has this been validated on other stressful situations? Yeah, so our group is mostly focused on divorce and and, uh, romantic separation, but it's actually been studied in a variety of different um, situations. So people that have gone through traumatic events, um, so if you imagine like people that might be dealing with things like PTSD, um, it's also been um, done with people who have lost their romantic partner due to, you know, a death event, Hmm. So, so after widowhood. Um, so it's, it's been done in a, in a variety of stressful situations. Oh, also uh, people going through, um, some kind of medical treatment and, and dealing with, um, you know, health issues like that. So any kind of sort of psychological stressor, physical stressor, um, there, there, 
they're probably either tried expressive writing or, or seen some positive effects from it. Now, that doesn't mean it's been narrative expressive writing specifically. Um, there, there has been um, other research looking at, you know, what, why is expressive writing, and this is traditional expressive writing we're talking about, um, effective. And a lot of that research seems to be pointing to this sort of narrative component. And that's why um, my advisor, Dave Sabara, decided to go ahead and try and explicitly ask people to create this narrative and see if that made a difference hmm. um, when they were sort of talking about or, or you know, journaling about their, their separation experience. So talk to us about the process of narrative expressive writing. What, how can we use it? Are there th- certain things? I mean, I'm assuming you got to be careful because you could also, if you're not careful, you could you could write the story, I guess, narrative expressive story where you're a victim and the world. I mean, are there guidelines to make sure you don't fall into st- certain storytelling or does it matter what story you tell? You know, we're not we're not quite sure about that. I think we do have the content of those uh, journals. And that would be a really interesting thing to look at. But if you think about um, journaling, it's, it's a pretty common technique that's used in um, therapy and and can be used, uh, you know, by a therapist working with um, a client. So, you know, that's that's something that I've I've actually used with some of my clients before, maybe not the explicit, you know, divorce related uh, prompts that we used. But, you know, basically with traditional expressive writing, the instructions are pretty, pretty straightforward. You know, you ask the people to write freely and continuously for 20 minutes about their strongest and deepest emotions surrounding their marital separation experience. Um, and, and you let them go. And, uh, I think before I said 15 minutes, but it was actually 20 minutes uh, a day over three hmm. days. And for, for the narrative expressive writing though, um, they're just, uh, basically you're asked to create a coherent and organized narrative about your separation experience. And we divided that into three days. And by we, I mean, <laughs> my advisor, Dave, uh, Tabara. Yeah. Um, so day one involved telling, you know, we want you to tell the story of the end of your relationship. What, you know, sort of when was it over? Um, day two involves narrating the separation experience. So basically what actually happened during the physical separation, you know, how did that, how did that go and what went on? And then day three is, um, describing an end to the divorce story. So, basically asking people to say, how is this, how is this going to end for you? Now, you know, as you said, there could be, you know, cases where people create a story that's maybe <laughs> less positive hmm. than, than what we would hope, but we didn't see necessarily any differences in uh, the narrative expressive writing condition based on hmm. things like, you know, maybe the types of words they used. Um, unfortunately, we don't, we don't have enough people in the study to really be able to do that for sure. But um, but yeah, you know, I think this, this these kinds of prompts can be adapted for a lot of different situations. Um, I think it's just important to have sort of a beginning, middle, and end, um, and separating those out uh, into explicit prompts and making sure that people know, you know, it's not just your deepest, darkest emotions. It's it's really about moving through um, that process. Yeah. Does it matter how long they write? I know you only did it for twenty minutes. Uh, and is there, a, I guess, do you know if there's a, a negative effect for doing it for hours? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's, uh, that's a pretty good question. I, I'm actually not sure in the literature if people have done 
you know, longer, um, like, time, just because it, it would increase sort of the burden on the people doing the studies, and people would be less likely to want to come in if you, uh, yeah. you're asking them to write for hours. But, I, you know, I think we all know sort of people that really enjoy writing, and, you know, they want to sit down and, you know, hash it out for longer. Uh, I, You know, if I was talking to someone who was trying to use this, I would say, you know, do what feels comfortable to you. It's it can be really tough to, you know, devote a few hours a day. I think, you know, everyone's so busy these days that maybe, you know, just five, 10, you know, 15 minutes a day, but you do it for a week that can, you know, probably have um, big impacts compared to maybe doing it all in one go. You bet. Um, and it might. Yeah. And it might be a little it might be a little easier to sort of dip into sort of dealing with some of, you know, the loss and and sadness that goes with something like divorce. If you're taking, you know, taking it in small bites, um, giving yourself some time to sort of work through it throughout your day. And then, you know, you have this, you know, this time to sort of let those emotions go and just write. Um, I, I, I feel pretty strong. I mean, it's not exactly correct, you know, connected, but I, you know, I run pretty much every day and it's not you know, like I go running for a long time. You know, I'm not going miles and miles and miles, but that break and that chance to sort of take some time away and do something that I want to do can be, you know, pretty helpful. You I bet. Think. Does, uh, you know, what else would be fascinating to find out is if um, they went back and reread the, uh, what they wrote, if if the reading of it or rereading of it, also um, what that does to heart rate and blood pressure. I mean, because if all of a sudden, I mean, I've I've had motivational thoughts, motivational quotes that I could go back to, um, maybe a scripture or two that I go back to, and it it reconnects me and kind of recenters me. I wonder if rereading it has an effect. You know, that's actually something we are. Uh starting to look at here for exactly the reason you said, you know, if you create this story, maybe it would also be helpful to look back at it or, or even revise it. You know, it, it doesn't mean that the story has to be set in stone. Maybe you bring people back. Yeah. Revising would be interesting. Later. Yeah. The, yeah. What's the one year revision look like? Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I think when I was talking before about gaining sort of psychological distance, you know, gaining a little bit of perspective on these situations, it might be really helpful for that, right? Yeah. If it allows you to sort of take that step back and say, you know, how, how was I feeling six months ago? What was I thinking? Where am I now? And how is that different? You know, maybe it will tap into that same idea of, of sort of the arc of, of people's recovery and, and helping them see that. You know, it can be really tough when you go through your day to day and you're, you know, any kind of, you know, situation, widowhood, losing a job, um, something like that. And, and, you know, you can feel like, oh, nothing's changed. Nothing's getting better. When in fact, you know, maybe you are doing a lot better. Um, and, and, but it can be hard to see that sometimes. Absolutely. And boy, there's just something powerful about the third person perspective where, you're seeing it more as as a, you know a third party instead of this is all about you and um talk about just any advice you'd give the rest of us for implementing a similar process in our own lives uh, like you were just saying there when we're having a stressful day or we just lost a job uh i guess is there an abbreviated version of this something we could do daily if we wanted to get into journaling 
Yeah, I think I think um, just just sort of starting off with getting into a habit. I mean, that's that's I think one of the biggest things, whether it be meditation or um, you know, like I said, with me, for me, it's running. For other people, it'll be journaling. It's getting that habit, and you know, it doesn't have to be a ton of time. It can be five minutes. It can be ten minutes. Um, but but basically, giving yourself a little bit of time and space to be able to take time out to worry about your own sort of well-being. Um, and then for the for the writing itself, I would say, you know, if, if you aren't going through, you know, a specifically stressful event, then I think you can just kind of go as you want to. But if you are dealing with something and there is, you know, sort of a specific event, then maybe making sure that you're looking at, you know, what led up to this, what happened during it, and where are you going from here? And trying to take that sort of three-part approach, you know, it's not just what happened, it's not just how I'm feeling, but it's, you know, what led to it, what happened, and how can I move forward. And I think having that view towards the future is really important. Beautiful. Great insight. Kyle Barasa, we appreciate your time, your great work on uh, on this research with your faculty there as well. Um, truly, it's it's not easy to get through these difficult times, but boy... You can have one tool like narrative expressive writing. It's powerful. And that's one way to do it, right? Uh, Just if it could take a little bit of the edge off or give you a little more empower, empower you just a bit, it might uh, go a very long way. Up next, we'll wrap up this uh, second hour of the show, giving you the tools, the information you need to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So many ways to eliminate or alleviate some of the stress that we're facing day in and day out. Uh, but there's just some things you can't avoid. If, you've ha- if you have a child, uh, then you understand that you just got to be ready for whatever they stick up their nose. You know, you never know. Thankfully, we're not there yet you in don't... my family. Oh, really? Like you no. haven't had any of your children put something foreign into their nose. Uh, no, thankfully not yet. My daughter put a frog eye noodle, if you've ever seen those, little noodle. It's like, not quite it's sure what that it's is. It's like a little, it's like a little noodle ball. Little okay. Noodle, tiny noodle ball. Yeah. Called frog eyes. And uh, she shoved one right up her nose. Hmm. Actually, she shoved about 10 of them right up her nose. See, but those can dissolve. Can they? It's not like a battery that will just burn the battery acid on you. Yeah, that's a great point. But how do you get frog eye noodle out of your kid's nose? Well, once they're crying, you just hold their other nostril and they either had to suck it in or blow it out. So I timed it just perfectly and then <laughs> last second just closed one of her nostrils and frog eyes came shooting out. It's just – it's simple aerodynamics. Well, and plus you have all that training from your EMT That's days. Right. It's, it's, I was using Bernoulli's principle of aerodynamics. Uh, well, listen to this crazy one. A schoolgirl in the UK uh, had a battery stuck up her nose for five months. She now faces, sadly, reconstructive surgery after it burnt through her septum. Kelsey is seven years old, was playing with a toy when she put a button battery from, from the toy up into her nose – uh, only for it to become lodged for almost half a year. Mother Carrie, who's 39 years old, told Kelsey 
uh, was told that Kelsey could need five operations over the next 15 years because the battery leaked and burnt through her septum. Wow. You didn't even – the mom, I'm sure, didn't even know she had done this. And, you, you know, don't get near her. Because if she ever touches you, oh, you're going to get zapped. You get that zapping feeling. Carrie is a, is a training manager at a local hospital, said after several trips to the hospital, the battery was picked up by x-ray after five months. Holy cow. That's maddening. And now the daughter's going to have surgery and problems for a long time. Plus, I mean, just the pain of knowing this could have all been fixed if somebody had caught it. Poor girl. And she's going to have people chasing her for the rest of her life trying to uh, charge their phones. That's right. And now the little ever-ready bunny or whatever, just going to – people going to make fun of her, tease her. Anyway, we wish her the best of luck. And by the way, it tells you don't take these little problems you're having with with your children. You know, Take them seriously. Don't let them pass. You never know. I mean how many kids have swallowed a penny? And this didn't pass. This didn't pass. There's some things that just don't pass. Darn it. Well, we wish her the best of luck. And uh, again, a lesson, I think, for all of us. Boy, kids do the darndest thing, don't they? That's hour number two. Up next, we're going to continue the journey. Next hour, we'll be visiting with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Set you up for uh, that fun, along with other uh, highlights and, and, and tools, things you need to know to live a healthier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the latest, greatest research information you need to uh, lead a healthier life. At least to know what the research is. None of us were born with a handbook, so here we go. We'll provide the handbook of life. Top of the morning to you. We've got a lot to cover uh, in this last hour of the program. Again, if you missed the earlier shows, you can go to iTunes. You can go to TuneIn, to Stitcher. Go to BYURadio.org. You can download them. Go get the BYU Radio app. These are all ways that you can download the Matt Townsend Show podcast. You're not going to want to miss it. It'll change your life. And then you'll have all this data for how to raise children. This is why dad does what he does. Because I was listening to the Matt Townsend show and I realized that today, for example, that we don't we don't play make-believe enough. Today we're going to talk about the importance of allowing your children to play make-believe. We never do that at work. No. I mean you try. Like when you come in in your – uh, Spider-Man outfit, and we're always like, Jeff, come on, man. We, I feel like I feel bad because it's like we ruin it for you. And then you had to call me down from the ceiling. Remember that? Yeah. You were on the roof. Do you remember that? And the fire department had to come get you off the roof. See? So we'll be talking with an expert on why make-believe play is such an important part of child development. And about imaginary friends. If you if you have a child with an imaginary friend, should you like stop that? Like quit talking to the wall, pal. No. 
Anytime my girls are content playing with each other, making up whatever it is they're making up, I don't uh, bother them You're at fine. all. What if what if they're not playing with each other, but they're playing by themselves, and and they're they're making up some elaborate storyline? Does that ever worry you? No. Just like go for it. That's yeah. Great. And that's see that's what our experts going to be telling us. We'll be replaying an interview we did with somebody that uh, deals with child development, and they will walk us through the important lessons learned as children play make-believe. Also today, we are celebrating All or Nothing Day. Whether it's applying for a job, trying an extreme sport, or just saying sorry to someone, everyone has something that they would love to try, but they're just too scared to do it. You're a little disappointed I didn't play Millie Vanilli, aren't you? A little bit. Because they tried it. They went all in. And they failed big time. And they got nothing. They were stripped of their (laughs) Grammy. I know. I know. She was a wonderful woman, too. Millie Vanilli? No, the Grammy. Oh, I see. Yeah. Wonderful lady. Uh, But, you know, she didn't apparently teach the children the importance of not cheating. I mean lip syncing. Who doesn't lip sync nowadays? This entire show, we lip sync. Well, your interview that you'll be doing here shortly, you will be lip syncing to that. That's for sure. We'll get to that, of course. Continue celebrating All or Nothing Day. Put your neck out a little bit. Do something you wouldn't dare to do and just blame it on today. Blame it on the rain if you're Millie Vanilli. Also, we'll be getting into some stories uh, of wonderful children doing the cutest little things um, and also um, how not to, to treat your children. We'll, we'll get into that. I don't want to give too many details away. Hmm. It's important that you – Are these new guidelines or well, should this be something we already know? You don't want to endanger your child by okay. towing them behind you. Yeah. Behind a little red wagon. Right. Like don't drag them and tow them. There's little – there's just important things you need. Is that like when you try to tickle their ribs with your toe, your big toe? No. Oh, I see. Do you do that? Different type of towing. Yeah, but your toe is – it's big. With your thumb toe, you mean? <laughs> yeah. That's another story where somebody lost a toe and they – or lost a thumb and they attached a toe for the thumb. Gucci, Gucci, goo. Daddy's going to get you with his thumb toe. <laughs> That's some traumatized children. We'll talk about uh, also um, a, a weird police chase that you wouldn't expect. All of that straight ahead. Plus, of course, BYU Sports Nation. We'll check in with them, find out what they're preparing for their show at the top of the hour. I believe Spencer and Jerem will be there. Um, we'll find out uh, the goods there. Plus, we'll also talk about the hero story, a Florida teen that uh, pulls a man to safety. Pretty cool. It's good to have a hero here and there. But first, let's get to the headline. Speaking of heroes, let's get to our hero, Terry South. Find out what's up on the headlines. The first generation of truly autonomous cars. Matt Townsend's dream My favorite. of safely dozing off never as he driving drives through again. city and the highway driving, never having to actually touch the wheel. Mm-mm. How much do you think that may cost you when the first generation of these cars actually hit the road? Uh, 50 grand. 
three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I'm going to do second generation. Says the CEO of a Silicon Valley company that makes autonomous sensing systems. So the sensors that will be put in the cars. This guy runs a company, one of them that builds these types yeah. of sensors. He says it's going to be expensive. In other words, you and I are highly unlikely to ever own a car that'll take us anywhere we want to go while we read the that, newspaper. You know what? Th- that's so fixable. All I need to do is drive into yeah. one of these cars mm. that is worth $350,000, and they'll solve that problem very quickly. <laughs> because you can't avoid me if I really want to hit you. The expense of these systems and the different uh, radar detection type uh, processes that go into these cars so they know when to turn and when to move so you don't get in a wreck are very sophisticated. They cost quite a bit of money. The uh, The CEO says the technology doesn't currently exist. It's mm. currently being developed. Yeah. What we have now is like driver-assisted yeah. driving. It's not really the autonomous vision that everyone has. And uh, so what it means is the ride-hailing fleets that will be owned by GM, Lyft, and Uber will be likely the first ones to get these cars right. that you'll be able to experience it. Eh. Yeah. So instead of owning it, you'll have to, like, you know, rent it, basically. Rent it. Why don't you just do a bunch of test drives? You could test drive every day, and it's as if you own a new car every day. There you go. On Friday, the ride-hailing company Lyft said its customers will be able to summon a driverless vehicle on some roads by the end of the year. The autonomy program, which is expected to launch in Boston before the... uh, eventually spreading to other cities, could ultimately involve hundreds of thousands of vehicles, the company says. Ooh. So when you get in that car, you'll have a driver behind the wheel, but he won't be touching anything because the car will be driving. But he's there just in case. Yeah, you never know. Which I guess Uber tried in San Francisco, and they just were blown through traffic lights left and right. So (laughs) we'll see what happens. A U.S. Navy patrol boat fired warning shots Tuesday near an Iranian vessel that came close to it during a tense encounter in the Persian Gulf. The AP reports Iran's hardline... Revolutionary Guard later blamed the American ship for provoking the incident. Really? Yeah, the video of it's interesting. You have the Iranian boat just sort of floating up to this fast attack boat that the U.S. has, and they're, they're, they're hailing, they're launching smoke signals and flares, and finally they just fire the gun across the bow, and that stopped and turned and went the other way. Yeah. So, yeah, no, there's no further incident, but uh, no. both sides are accusing the other ones of provoking the incident. Come on. This is how it works, right? This isn't scout camp, boys. The New York Times is reporting American intelligence agencies have shortened their estimate to one year of how long it will likely take North Korea to put the finishing touches on a missile that could reach the continental United States. Well, at this rate, there's going to be problems before then. Right. And it says as of a few weeks ago, the official estimate would take roughly four years. Now it's down to 12 months. So just keeping you updated on the timeline. Thank you. I don't know what to think. And finally, uh, U.S. malls, the yeah. people that own such things that are falling out of uh, favor with many shoppers, fed up with watching their apparel change, department stores, and electronic locations go dark as Amazon continues to eat them alive with deals and, you know, actually having the product on when you need it. Right. Which is, you know, you walk in, you want a product that's not there, okay, I'll go buy it from Amazon. Yeah, just not a big deal. So, because they're fed up with that, they're trying to find new ways to fill the now empty spaces in their malls. Of course. And so they're they're looking at uh, the the fact fun. I hope. Well, they're looking at the fact that across the United States, spending on apparel and electronics is down, while cash spent on hotels, dining, and travel is up. Experience. So you want to you want to provide experiences. Yeah. So they're trying to find that type of a retailer, not. A business that could come in and provide that kind of experience to draw people in. 
And so uh, this this is one mall in uh, Topanga, California. They have uh, they're spending nine billion to redevelop its thirty five shopping centers around the nation. Outdoor lifestyle centers of some of its traditional malls, filling them with spa, yoga studios, and yeah. new restaurant concepts. Okay. Mm. One of the businesses that is being sought after across the nation is called Gloveworks. Okay. It's a boxing studio. Oh, really? So you put the gloves on. Oh, this is great. So uh, let's say a husband and wife. Oh, no, 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 no. I okay. see where you're going. Okay. No one actually gets punched in the face. At, at glove works. It's so, more of cardio, your speed bag, punching bags. For now. Form, function, and in your punch. I don't know that we should have an easy boxing match ring or whatever near okay. where people are trying to. So, yeah. Well, you, I think they have the gloves on chains, so you can only punch so far. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's smart. As it says here, they have some locations in Philadelphia and other places, and it says about 85% of its members are women who might be inclined to shop at Bloomingdale's after their workout is the idea. Right? Okay. You go there for the workout, and then, you, oh, wait, I'm already down here, and you run over to Bloomingdale's. Right, and then grab a green shake or whatever. Buy okay. an $80 T-shirt or something mm-hmm. at Bloomingdale's. Um, another one's called Punch Bowl Social. A lot mm. of punches that being thrown fun. around. It's actually a, a food chain. So it, you just sit, you stand around the punch bowl? And- it's, it's a nine-store restaurant chain right now. It offers bowling, table tennis, pool, arcade games, and karaoke. Wow. The, the key, that, the, the way that works is you have a big store. And like this, in this case, uh, the person they're talking to runs a mall that had a Nordstrom's in it, right? Okay. When Nordstrom's clears out, you now have a cavernous 25,000-square-foot yeah. place. What are you going to put in there? You can't divide it up and find like... 40 places, you know, 40 no. businesses. They want one, and these restaurants are 25,000 square feet. Boy. So they so can put up like all their games. Dave and Buster's yeah, that kind on of a, steroids. Like a showbiz cheese pizza place. You know, so they, that, they're, do, trying to, they're trying to be more, look beyond trying to just sell you clothes and sell you electronics, those types of stores that take up a lot of space. They're trying to find cool. restaurants or exercise type places so that you can be drawn in and still go shopping after you experience. Does, does this mean more and more people are going to be wearing yoga pants at dinner? Yeah, probably. Ugh. And boxing gloves too. Yeah, try to try to attack a plate of wings with boxing gloves on. <laughs> How fun this could be, though! But again, it sounds a little expensive because some of these, like Dave and Buster type restaurants, they're not known for their food. Right. They're kind of known for all the other stuff. The video games and activities you can go do. It really is. It's Chuck E. Cheese for adults. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that's the way – maybe the concept of a mall needs to be rethought, not just find something yeah. else to you know fill the building that's now empty. Boy, I bet that's scary for all the mall owners. There's a mall by my house. Everything that was of any value is now – they built up the parking lot, so there's less parking. And everything that's in the mall, it's basically a swap meet. Oh. So you can bring your old skis. Yeah. Swap them out. Just kind of walk in there and you're like, wow, there's all that – Nothing wrong with that. Blanket art with big wolves on it everywhere. <laughs> hey, now that sounds like comfortable sleeping right there. On the on the wolf blanket? Oh, the, yeah. The wolf blanket. The wolf it's made out of hang- real wolf yeah. hair. And howling at the moon. There's samurai swords in there. Oh, you go I by. love that. That's great. Isn't That's that your great. spirit animal? The wolf? Yeah. No, I think mine's a gopher. Yeah, that sounds about right. What do you mean by that? Wow. What, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. But. Come again? I can't hear you. He's got that hearing problem. That's weird. Hey, uh, 
Listen to this crazy story. Um, A Springfield, Oregon mother is accused of endangering her two children by towing them in a little red plastic wagon behind her car. Yeah. Yeah, the people are mad about it. And she drove them around a roundabout repeatedly Wednesday evening. Elena Nicole Donahue, 27, was arrested shortly before 8.30 p.m., less than an hour after the Springfield police received calls from concerned motorists. According to arresting officer, Donahue told police she didn't understand what the problem was because she was only (laughs) driving five miles an hour. She was just trying to show the kids a good time. Donahue was. I'm sure the kids loved it. She wasn't intoxicated, and at least four drivers called police after seeing the woman in a white Ford Taurus pulling the wagon in a traffic circle. The wagon was tied to the vehicle with a strap or a similar type of connector. The wagon drivers told police had two children in it. The children are three and five years old. I mean, this this kind of makes sense if it's like a teenage boy and a teenage boy male driver and another teenager in a wagon or something. That makes sense. I think they were having a great time and they were safe until their mom put her foot on the brakes and then they slammed into the bumper. Yeah, then that. And, you know, drivers reported that the woman was waving vehicles to go around her. Go around me. I'm going to go slow for the kids. As she drove in the roundabout, (laughs) then traffic began to back up. One driver reported nearly hitting the wagon. You know, but you're doing it for the kids. For the kids. And apparently... It happened. I mean, it took like a, the cops, I guess, an hour or so that this was going on. Maybe she just really wanted to listen to an audio book that may not That's have been it. appropriate That's for the it. kids. Once you're into an audio book and the, you know the kids are having fun, were the kids far enough behind that she could see in the rearview mirror that they were both in the wagon? I mean, because <laughs> a lot of kids would just get out of the wagon or like get dizzy. Five miles per hour. Yeah, they could they could have safely gotten out of that. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't jumped out of a car at five miles an hour? Maybe not in a roundabout, though. Well, that's the problem. Mm. Parenting 101. Uh, can we just give you some advice on this one? We suggest, uh, A, if you're, if you're going to do this, wear helmets. Always take your kids on a drive safely. Or B, just don't go near this idea and just pull the wagon. And if you want, you can run faster on the wagon. I mean, do you remember tying a wagon to your bike, don't you? Oh, yeah. We used to go rollerblading and uh, holding onto a doggy leash and the, just let the dog pull you. Pull us, yeah. But you know that it's dangerous just doing this with a bicycle. Oh, yeah. Let alone a car. And doing it on the sidewalk, let alone a roundabout. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to use a bicycle, at least hold on to the car while it's driving. Mm. That's no. safe, right? No. Anyway, be careful, parents. You These kids are gifts, right? Gifts from heaven. No need to lug them around like a dead turkey. Come on. Have you dragged a dead turkey behind your car? Not this week. I think that's how you, that's how you uh, tenderize it. <laughs> yeah, I like to <laughs> loosen up my turkey meat. Uh, anyway, be careful, parents. Be careful. We are going to uh, be coming back talking with Tracy Gleason about the importance of make-believe for your children. So instead of uh, driving them in the roundabout, maybe let them go play some make-believe. Let them bring out their imaginary friends. Interesting child development uh, rules and tools up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. 
If you were at work and you heard somebody, maybe one of your coworkers talking to someone, and then you look over and they're actually not talking to anyone, you might be a little weirded out. They're talking, but no one is there. Talking to an imaginary person can sometimes be a little socially awkward, right? But for young children, these imaginary friends could actually be the ones who teach kids social skills to begin with. Our guest is uh, that we're going to be replaying an interview with Tracy Gleason. She's a professor of psychology and the psychological director at Wellesley College Child Study Center. And in the interview, I begin the interview asking about how it seems that kids are not using their imaginations as much as they used to. Well, I have to be honest with you, that is something that I worry about. Uh, I think most of the time when children do interact with imaginary companions, it, it starts because they have time to themselves. Uh, and there is some evidence to suggest that pretend play in general is something we turn to when we don't have a lot of other stuff going on, when, when we aren't scheduled into activities. So it's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure that I can say, you know, definitively that we do it less now right. than, than we used to. Uh, I, don't, I don't have evidence of that. But it does, you know, sort of practically speaking, it does seem like children do have more and more kind of scheduled activities earlier and earlier in their lives. What, one of the things that you, you talk about is um, this imaginary friend kind of idea um, with our children. I guess that's a normal part of child development uh, is, is, is having and learning, I guess, social interaction through either real experiences or imagined yeah, or role-playing exactly. even. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that children use their imagination and, in fact, adults as well uh, in their interactions with other people. Um, children who have imaginary companions uh, are actually quite common. We think of them as, as kind of rare, but in fact, there's a study that talked about, um, or that looked at children up to about age seven and discovered that about 60% of them had an imaginary companion at some point. Now, I should mention that that included both invisible imaginary companions, which is kind of the classic idea of what an imaginary companion is, but also um, there's a category of imaginary companions that we call personified objects. Things like stuffed animals or dolls or toys or blankets, really any object you can think of can be made into a friend um, that children also use and animate and personify uh, as if they're real people. So in, if you include both the objects and the invisibles, it's, it's something that happens a lot. And, and I, I guess they're doing it. Why? What, what is their, what, you know, what's the developmental need here that they're working on? Well, um, your question kind of assumes there is a developmental need, and, and you're probably right at least some of the time. Um, and, and, you know, the question also sort of assumes there's a reason, uh, when in fact I think there are probably as many reasons why children create imaginary companions as there are imaginary companions themselves. Um, first and foremost, I think children create imaginary companions because it's fun. Uh, it's it's it can be very entertaining to have somebody else there that you can play with, um, especially if they want to do what you want to do. That's kind of nice. Uh, but at the same time, children use imaginary relationships to work out all kinds of things, um, to explore ideas about relationships, such as um, ideas about friendship. Uh, it's very safe to get in an argument with your imaginary friend because you can decide when that argument is over mm. and you can figure out, you know, 
what has to happen in order to to make it um, resolved. Whereas with a real friend, boy, you know, those other little kids are so unpredictable. It's hard to know what's going to happen. So children can, can use these imaginary forums for exploring negative emotions or tough ideas or things that have scared them or just simply things they have really enjoyed. Can Can parents, I mean, it seems powerful to be able to watch your child engaging with their imaginary friend because it, it seems like it would give you a whole other view of what's going on in your child's head. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that parents can observe their children interacting with imaginary companions or really engaging in any form of pretend play, uh, they can get some ideas about what is on their children's minds. Um, but one of the things that a student of mine, Rachel White, and I discovered is that among parents who know about their children's imaginary companions, because most of them do, but but not all, um, we do find that the imaginary companions appear a lot, not so much when the children are, say, by themselves or playing, but often in conversation with adults. So it's, it's almost like a conversation starter, like, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, um, mom's business trip, and the child might say, well, you know, my imaginary companion went on a business trip, too. Um, so you, you're able to uh, bring a topic to the table that only you know about, and then you know, the parents need to ask questions to know what's going on with your imaginary companion. So it's also kind of fun because hmm. you control it. And and how much of that – so I guess then the parent just engages, oh, so tell me where your friend went and, and starts engaging and allows the child to kind of go with their story. Yeah, exactly. And then you have all these wonderful things happening because the child is practicing narrative, which is pretty important to us um, as social creatures, and they are engaging in a – in a kind of perspective taking, thinking about what their imaginary companion was thinking about and doing. And, um, and, and they also are, you know, inventing details and being creative and coming up with, with stories about, you know, what the imaginary companion does for a living that it would need to go on a business trip. Hmm. So, and then beyond all that, they're interacting with and engaging with an important person in their lives and having this, this wonderful, fun interaction around um, the imaginary companion. And I, I could just see some people worrying that, well, honey, okay, let's let's talk about my. Tr- I mean, like, I mean, maybe they wouldn't, but d- there's really not a need to worry about this at all. Not remotely. Um, I've I've been doing this research for a long time, and and you know, I'm obviously in touch with a lot of the other people, like Marjorie Taylor at the University of Oregon, who's been doing this for ages and ages, and. I think in all the years that she and I have been doing work in this area she encountered one child in whom she was not entirely certain that the child knew that the imaginary companion wasn't real. I've never encountered a child who didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, sometimes I'll, I'll interview a child who has an imaginary companion, and I'll be asking questions about how old is your friend and uh, what his name is and if it's a boy or girl and where it lives and, you know, just sort of basic stuff like that. And maybe halfway through the interview, the child will say to me, you know, He's not real. As if, you know, they're kind of concerned. You know. Tracy, you know he's not real, right? Yeah. That's great. Maybe this, this lady's a little too into it. I don't know. i gotta got to make sure that we're on the same page here. And I will say, I know. And then, and then we'll go right back to the interview, and it's all fine. Interesting. So they just kind of check in. Like, just make sure, we, just, you know, we know what we're talking about here. This is fascinating. And um, I, I don't ever remember 
having imaginary friends. But so I wonder if I missed something. Let's take a break, Tracy. We'll come back. I want you to tell us more about the power that this can have for unlocking different perspectives and being able to, I guess, voice and, and share more with our family or our parents um, having these imaginary friends. We're speaking with Dr. Tracy Gleason um, from Wellesley College Child Study Center, and uh, she's filling us in, giving us the tools, the information we need to be better parents to understand our children. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Talk about good. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, Dr. Tracy Gleason, and she's talking to us about an article we found that she... Um, that she authored in the conversation, Why Make-Believe Play is important is an Important Part of Childhood Development. And we've been talking about these imaginary friends that the kids have. About 60% of uh, children, if it sounds like, will either have an imaginary friend or kind of a, um, a personified object, their teddy bear, something that they can... Yeah, you know, use as a, a tool, I guess, in interacting with life, a safe space in a way. And Dr. Gleason, thank you again so much for being with us. Oh, sure thing. What? Um, so when it comes to the imaginary friends and uh, the imaginary friends or the uh, personified objects that our children play with is, I guess the idea is this, it, this gives them a chance to have a voice. It gives them a, a safe uh, place because it seems confusing in a way because they have to deal with their personality, but also the, they have to make up the personality and the narrative for this imaginary thing. But when you also think about it, that's some serious learning. I mean, that's Absolutely. that's some major negotiating going on. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, that's I think one of the most fascinating aspects of this play. Uh, and not only are you keeping in mind who you are your, and who your imaginary companion is, but you are also inventing a relationship that exists between the two of you. And one of the things that we find is that some children invent relationships that are egalitarian, like friendships, uh, and some children invent relationships that are more hierarchical, um, usually where they themselves are kind of like the parent and the imaginary companion is the child. But mm. you do find somewhere uh, the child is, is the child and the imaginary companion might be more of a kind of mentor or um, not necessarily a parent per se, but somebody with more power and competence than the child themselves. Um, so, you know, the fact that they are inventing these relationships and that they resemble different types of real relationships suggests that this is an area in which children can kind of explore what relationships are all about. And I guess, uh, is there an age where we're, we're thinking, okay, maybe it's time your imaginary friend stays home from work? <laughs> <laughs> or, well, I mean, is there is there a point that this ends, I guess, just naturally? Or are, right. is some form of this still going on inside of each of us that helps us distinguish who we are from others or... Right. Uh, excellent question. I think that's that's probably something we need to do a lot more thinking about because it's true you don't find a lot of children 
who are, say, 10 or 15 or adults in the workplace who are, you know, say, my imaginary companion went on a business trip. Um, <laughs> that, that isn't something that really occurs so much. Um, oh, it doesn't. It does in my world, just so you know. <laughs> I just have this one guy. I don't want to mention names. Well, but I, I'm not sure if it does happen, if that's necessarily a problem, because as I said, I mean, even the youngest children know they're not real, and that's usually the best signal that somebody is, you know, got it all together. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, even if your adult friend has an imaginary companion, but, you know, will admit when pressured that, that okay, this is something that I've made up. There's no reason why that can't still be a fun thing to do. What we find is that typically children stop talking about imaginary companions around the time that they start formal schooling, like maybe kindergarten, first grade. But you can still find them if you ask about them. And in fact, there's lots of evidence that children in middle childhood and even in adolescence have sometimes have imaginary companions. But they, they have a slightly different form than the, the ones from early childhood. Um, they they tend not to be talked about out loud, but maybe just thought about. Kind of, you know how little children often narrate what they're doing. They, yeah. They talk a lot about the activities they're engaged in, and they just kind of do a little sing song thing maybe while they're playing. Um, when that kind of external um, voice or narrative disappears and becomes internal, that's around the same time that imaginary companions kind of disappear or stop getting talked about. But they might actually, you know say, go underground and, and still be present in many children's lives. And as for adults, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking particularly about real people, but imagining conversations mm-hmm. um, with Anticipate, yeah. Yeah, anticipating arguments or, you know, maybe you have great news to share and you're thinking about how you might say it or, um, you know, the different ways that you could present it. Um, or you're you're anticipating a job interview, and, and maybe you've never met your interviewer, but you might imagine a conversation with this, you know, real person, but who's imaginary to you because you haven't met them yet. And you might imagine what they're going to ask you and what you're going to say in response. I think that's a lot of the same skills as we see children using in, with their imaginary companions in early childhood. Yeah. No, I, in fact, it's interesting to think of it that way. Because it also seems like you have a huge advantage to have a big imagination. It, I mean, it, it, it allows you to see so many other things going on. So how do we – if we have a child uh, that maybe we're too worried is getting maybe too caught up in tech and, and not being creative enough or not generating their own you know, play or their own activities, are there things we could do to introduce more imaginative activity? Oh, that's a great question. Um... You know, there is a wide range of individual differences in how much children enjoy pretend play. Some kids would pretend from morning to night, given the opportunity, and other kids really just aren't that into it. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Um, I, I think having a, a, a well-functioning imagination is uh, really important. You know, we, we need to use it to do things like consider different options uh, if we're trying to make a decision or to generate counterfactuals. You know, if I do A, you know, would B happen or C happen? Or, you know, what if I did B, then, you know, what would happen? Um, we use our imagination for that kind of work. So, so it is important to, um, to develop it. But pretend play isn't the only way that you can develop it. And in fact, in, in many technical kinds of activities, um, there is a fair amount of creativity and imagination. So, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not sure it's necessarily a problem if somebody isn't way into pretend play, um, but I think encouraging different ways of thinking about things and consideration of, of stuff that is outside of the here and now uh, is the essence of the, of the skill that we're trying to develop yeah. here. It's, I, it, the, it, I love that idea that we know they're so different, but some of us get panicky because how come your children are all doing this and my child just sits there and bounces a ball? Right. <laughs> well, right. And, and, and certainly if a, if a child is kind of stuck in a rut with their play, we, we might want to do things to facilitate interest in other um, activities. Um, preschool teachers do this kind of thing all the time where they, you know, they see that the pretend play has turned into kittens who just meow at each other. And, uh, and they, you know, they might introduce <laughs> a new idea or a new prop or a new scenario to try and, you know, pull the kittens back to human or maybe pull them into a different scenario where they're, where they're kind of operating differently. Because um, children, you know, they do sometimes kind of get stuck into a little way of doing things and, and maybe need a little help to, to pull themselves out. Um, but, you know, most of the time children are following, well, when they're allowed to, children are following their interests and uh, exploring um, lots of different aspects of various topics and materials and, and allowing opportunities for that and providing an environment that opens up doors rather than leads you down a single path is probably the secret to, to fostering this kind of thinking. Yeah. Well, Tracy, we appreciate you. Uh, keep up the great work there at uh, Wellesley College um, as the psychological director there. That's wonderful stuff. We appreciate you. And, wow, kids, oh, they're just beautiful, and they're so different, right? Just remember the little things you used to do. I just, ah, oh, there's so many stories. Let's all be more patient. Let kids develop. Trust, the, trust a lot of the stuff that they'll just do naturally to learn. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll visit two of our favorite kids down at BYU Sports Nation and uh, see what's going on on their show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It is time to send it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. And uh, hopefully Spencer and Jerem are getting ready. I know Spencer's got a big game tonight that he should be stretching out for. Guys, are you there? Of course we are here. Why would he stretch out like eight, nine, ten hours early? Have you seen his hamstrings? They're tight. Tight hamstrings. He needs to start stretching now. I don't now. want to know anything about his hamstrings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Every time he walks by, we're all like, look at those hamstrings. They yeah. are impressive, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> That's the word. All right. <laughs> That's the Some word we're looking for. Hey, are you? so you're going to play tonight, right, Spence? Uh, I feel like you're putting this pressure on me because Jeff is by you and he's counting on me to show up. Jeff right? needs somebody to be the cleanup hitter. Oh, please. Jeff saw how bad I was in our practice game of yeah. sorts. We've uh, been talking about that played. too, yeah. That's embarrassing. Yeah, hey, I can play a little defense. You put the mitt on the wrong hand. You always were <laughs> defensive. <laughs> you are such a defensive person. Yeah. Hey, um okay, so we won't put too much more pressure on playoff you. game for BYU TV sports softball team. Playoffs. It's kind of scary. You I mean, it's you don't want to you don't want to be the one that loses it for everybody. Right? You know what I mean? But, you know, 
with hamstrings like yours, how could anything go wrong? <laughs> hey, uh, did you guys hear what's going on with what o- a hamstring <laughs> talk going on right now? <laughs> well, you know, uh, have you guys heard what's going on with Oklahoma State and Ohio State and Oregon State? Uh, academics? No, a big Sports. battle over who owns OSU. OSU. Oh, interesting. This uh, is a weird huh. thing. Like, so what happens? No when, one owns OSU. But apparently, they they're that. fighting for the legal rights to have the trademark OSU. I Fun. think I think national championships should determine who gets OSU. Okay, Ohio State then. Legally, yeah. Boy. Yeah. Hold on. I guess Oklahoma State too. Boy, this this never ends, does well, it? Well, unless Boone T. Pickens offers up <laughs> like Pickens five hundred million dollars, which is could pocket happen. change for him, and that could happen. Then maybe Oklahoma State takes the legal rights. Boy, see, it t- it's T. Boone Pickens, isn't it? It's T. Boone. T. Boone yeah, Pickens. T. Boone Pickens. Yeah, I don't know. It's it seems like now the brand matters more than anything else that's going on. Right? These brands are huge. It does matter. Hashtag OSU, right? Hashtag, yeah. The OSU. <laughs> what? Ooh, the, yeah. But see, the OSU, what? you could differentiate by just saying the OSU. Then then that's a whole different... That's now the, we're that's talking. A, that's a whole different see, brand. If I, yeah, if I were Ohio State, I'd just be like, yeah, we're uh, you can be OSU. We are the OSU. Mm. They, I'm, I'm serious. Sometimes they go lowercase... T, capital OSU. Yes, of course they do. Do they? See, I, we have professors on the show that want to be introduced from as being a professor at the Ohio State University. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a thing per se just with the university. It's for the area. Yeah. Like it's the Ohio, it, the Ohio River. Right. The, that's even in LDS scripture, the Doctrine and Covenants, is the Ohio. The Ohio. Yeah. Everyone thinks it's about Ohio State. It's not Ohio State. Deal with it, Matt. Man, I did not know. Deal with it. You you deal with it. It's um. Do do you think BYU will run into any of these troubles? Any other schools that have BYU? The Y. The Y. BYU. But the Y looks like a yell. Like looks like yell. I I got that at the Nike employee store in Beaverton two weeks ago. Did they? They They said, "Oh, Yale." You go to Yale? Like, eh, kind of. Let them think that. Yeah. Oh, yep. Yep, yes. law graduate from yes. Yale. <laughs> it ain't easy. It ain't easy being beautiful, is it, Jerem? It ain't easy. So, you guys, um, you're still doing your show today, right? Today is the biggest show we've ever done. Holy cow. It's the fall camp preview show. <laughs> we today. will get you ready for fall camp, baby. Yeah, Tanner yeah. Mangum, the quarterback, will be on the program, plus Greg Rubel, plus us. We're going to preview the top storylines going into fall camp. The top three storylines going into fall camp. And wait for it, Matt. What, 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 what? Brand new odds out from the BYUSN odds makers of who is most likely to win fall camp MVP. Hold on. This this is big time. Place your Jolly Rancher bets right now. There's actually a BYU Mormon odds maker? (laughs) No. Okay, I'm just wondering where we're that give, came from. We always we always anoint a fall camp MVP, <laughs> which is okay. one of the bigger jokes of all time. But it's uh, a great joke. We, do it. we love it. It's a great joke. Spring. We might even do more than that this year. We may hand out a slew of awards, but we're going to give you the odds of who's most likely to win the fall camp MVP. Mm. Oh, this is a big show. Is anything else on the show? No. Any, anything else? Uh, we'll tell you the the former BYU Cougar who continues to hit homers in the minors. Okay, it's kind of getting ridiculous at this point. And what NFL players, former Cougs, report today? 
to their NFL teams. Yeah, campers mm-hmm. not just uh, in the collegiate ranks. Happy campers. What 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 are the odds that the BYU team will BYU broadcasting team will win their game their softball game tonight? Mm. Do you guys have an odds odds if, maker on that? If Jeffrey, what time are you guys playing? If Jeffrey is playing six fifteen. What field? Did we talk about this? One field one or two? I field two. Don't know. Two A. If it's field two, we're playing two. Ooh. It's two. Is it two? It's two. He speaks. Oh. <laughs> Why is that? Why does that matter? Because Jerem's because on the, I'm other, on the team. other team. <gasps> You're playing each other. Jerem defected to BYU athletics. What a defect. <laughs> Uh, you're playing each other on the team, so then I move. This is a big deal. Okay, so tomorrow we will have to talk about who wins. Talk about good. Who has the best game? Uh-huh. uh-huh. And so you, Jeff, and Jerem, this is big. I think we play. I'm just going to read this email wait, from Steve wait, Johnson. Wait, we are in... I play at 7:15. Oh, Jerem, oh, oh no, 7:15. Darn it! I was because so looking forward to beating you. I was gonna. Throw a softball at your head. <laughs> Steve says, I think we can definitely win this first game. Wow. So, yeah, you're not that's playing the my scout. team. That's the scout. Scout Steve Johnson? You're not playing my team then. If that's the scouting report. Um, but you're still a defect, Jerem. <laughs> According to Spencer. What? I've been hearing that since I was four from my dad. <laughs> Mama really said weird. I was a defect. He was this too. Defect child. <laughs> You're a defect. Sorry, Mom. Verbal abuse. <laughs> uh, okay, guys, I'll let you go get ready for your game, and maybe we'll have another, maybe we'll have a shot where you two can go head to head. We'll even send down one of our reporters and to get some audio. Shik Shumway? Shik Shumway will go. Maybe Ron Broca. Ron Broca. Well, he only, he only goes out for the. Uh, the higher end really? intramural softball games. What we we could also have Greg Jumble. He does the Ivy League intramural softball games. Really? Yeah. The Ivy League. Now is this is this intramural um is this team by what's the word? Um do you have men and women on this team? It's not co ed. Co ed. No. That's the word I was looking for. I was on one of those teams though. Seems kinda rude. I think if we if you had more ladies on the team, you guys would probably be winning more. Definitely. Actually, they technically they can have women on the team, but they have to abide by the men's rules, which right. sounds horrible. Does it? <laughs> sounds horrible describing it that way. Yeah, it does. They 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 get the men's count instead of the women's count. Yeah, it's all numbers though, and right? none of the other. Yeah, I, I'm going to shut my mouth before I get in trouble. That's all good. That's all good. Hey, uh, listen to this. An obsessive U.K. woman has been jailed following a car chase with police who are trying to help her boyfriend, es- uh, who were trying to help her boyfriend escape her clutches. Kirsty Hargraves uh, pursued a police car containing Michael Moforth after he begged them to help him leave her. But she refused to let him get away and dangerously ch- chased the West Yorkshire police vehicle in her car it was a hot pursuit of, a, of an angry uh, woman chasing her husband or her boyfriend in a police car unbelievable Hargreaves caused oncoming cars to swerve as she crossed white lines and drove alongside the unmarked police car because she wanted to persuade her partner not to leave she followed Moforth to the police station before hitting the police car after following it through a security barrier in the early hours of March 27th. 
female officer was injured when she was pushed into the barrier while trying in vain to stop Hargraves running into the police station. Hargraves admitted dangerous driving and assaulting a police officer. She was jailed for 10 months and handed an 18-month driving ban. I, I want your opinion. Yeah. Do they have a chance? A chance to harm each other? Definitely. But for reconciliation? I'm going with no. If you can't take if you can't take a breakup when the police are there, I mean even for an hour, you know, they could have she could have talked to him later. 